The Inflation Reduction Act that President Biden signed this week includes a provision that's meant to push automakers to reduce cheaper electric vehicles. This is not a natural smooth transition. This is very much a forced acceleration of the EV marketplace. How this could increase EV sales coming up. It's Friday, August 19th. This is WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead in the Boston area, the Orange Line shutdown for repairs is hours away. A Green Line closure is not far behind. Experts say other cities can learn from Boston's experience. As ridership is slower to recover, it's a cautionary tale to every other transit agency and system in the country. Abortion remains legal in Michigan after a circuit court judge ruled that the county prosecutors cannot charge providers with a felony. These stories and 25 years since the release of the 1997 Rodgers and Hammerstein's film, Cinderella. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. A Michigan judge is blocking Republican prosecutors in Macomb, Kent and Jackson counties from enforcing a 1931 law that bans nearly all abortions and could expose providers to criminal prosecution. The law was triggered when the U.S. Supreme Court overturned a 1973 ruling that legalized abortion nationwide. In his ruling today, Oakland County Circuit Judge Jacob Cunningham says the decision should rest with voters. This court finds it is overwhelmingly in the public's interest to let the people of the great state of Michigan decide this matter at the ballot box, assuming the constitutional amendment initiative is on the ballot on November 8th. Abortion rights is a prominent issue in the re-election campaigns of Michigan's Democratic governor and attorney general. A British man's been sentenced in U.S. District Court to life in prison for his role in the deaths of four American hostages captured by ISIS. Al-Shafi al-Sheikh learned his fate at his hearing in Northern Virginia today. The first assistant U.S. attorney, Raj Parekh, said this prosecution, quote, unmasked the vicious and sadistic men dubbed by their captors the Beatles because of their British accents. Prosecutors say al-Sheikh is the highest-ranking member of the group to be convicted in U.S. court. Writers are expressing solidarity with the famed 75-year-old author Salman Rushdie, who is currently hospitalized with severe stab wounds from an attack at the Chautauqua Institution in New York last week. NPR's Elizabeth Blair reports that today on the steps of the New York Public Library, more than a dozen writers read excerpts from Rushdie's work. Poet Reginald Dwayne Betts read from The Power of the Pen. When a reader falls in love with a book, it leaves its essence inside him. Rushdie was forced to spend years in hiding after Iran's leader accused him of blasphemy and called for his death. In more recent years, Rushdie has been a staunch defender of free speech. Comedian Asif Manvi read from Rushdie's forthcoming novel, Victory City. All that remains is the city of words. Words are the only victors. The head of PEN America, which co-organized the event, told the audience not even a blade to the throat could still the voice of Salman Rushdie. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. U.S. stocks closed lower today as investors try to parse mixed signals on interest rates. NPR's Scott Horsley has more. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell is set to address an annual economic meeting in Jackson Hole, Wyoming next week. Investors will be listening for any hints about the size of future interest rate hikes. The Fed's expected to keep raising rates as it tries to curb inflation, but the central bank doesn't want to move too fast and risk tipping the economy into recession. Foot Locker's profits outran analyst expectations for the most recent quarter, and stock in the sporting goods retailer moved higher. Foot Locker also named Mary Dillon as its new CEO. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. 
From Washington, this is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. MBTA officials are preparing for the month-long shutdown of the Orange Line. It begins tonight, and they're insisting the closure will not take any longer than a month. WBUR's Simone Rios has more. MBTA Chief Steve Poftak says work planned was identified well before the shutdown was announced and will be focused above all on increasing rider safety. And he says T-riders can be confident it will be done in the 30-day time frame. We have gone through what I would say is a very painstaking, excruciating process to make sure we've got that choreography as good as we can get it, and that does give me confidence that we're going to be able to execute the work. The T has budgeted $37 million for shuttle buses during the shutdown. The rest of the work will be paid for out of the T's capital budget. Poftex says Orange Line operators will spend the shutdown helping riders navigate the diversion and undergoing safety training. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. Massachusetts' economy is creating jobs, according to the state. Employers added more than 13,000 people to their headcounts last month. That drops the statewide unemployment rate to 3.5%. State labor officials say the biggest job gains were in government, professional and business services, as well as in education and health services. The leisure and hospitality sector lost more than 12,000 jobs. The federal government has declared all of the state except Berkshire County and Nantucket as disaster areas because of the drought. That designation means emergency federal loans will be available to farmers. Warren Shaw is president of the Massachusetts Farm Bureau Federation. He says the money will help farmers make up for lost livestock feed. The corn crop will probably be in the range of 50% of what it should be. The grass crops might be 20% of what it should be. So all of that means we're looking at some tremendous uh, replacement costs there. Shaw says farmers have also had to pay more to run irrigation systems longer to water their crops. In the forecast, still dry today, tonight, over the weekend as well. Overnight lows tonight about 68 degrees. And for tomorrow, mostly sunny, a light wind. The chance of a brief afternoon shower. And then for Sunday, bright sunshine, breezy in the upper to mid-80s over the weekend. Cooler weather's due in next week, though. 90 degrees now in the Boston area at 407. WBUR supporters include Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A ruling today means abortion will remain legal in Michigan, at least for now. Michigan Judge Jacob Cunningham says an abortion ban on the state's books can't be enforced right now. This is a law that dates back to 1931, and the judge suggested that not blocking it could be catastrophic. Though the court appreciates both sides of this debate are passionate in their convictions, by not issuing an injunction today, the court would send the health care system into crisis, the extreme costs of which would then be put on the women of our great state. Today marks a big victory for abortion rights advocates and for people who'd flocked to Michigan from other states that have banned abortion in recent months. There have been a lot of confusion over enforcement of this nearly century-old state law. And that confusion may not end with today's decision, as Rick Pluta of Michigan Public of the Michigan Public Radio Network is here to explain. Hey, Rick. Hi, Mary Louise. Hey, so first, just a little context. There are there are a bunch of legal fights underway over abortion in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Just situate the significance of this particular case. Um, sure, there is a different court ruling that says the state 
cannot file charges against abortion providers. But that's really a non-issue because Michigan's Democratic Attorney General Dana Nessel says that's not going to happen. So this injunction issued today says for now at least local county prosecutors cannot file charges either. And that's despite the fact that some Republican county prosecutors say that, well, that should be their call. They should be able to file charges. All right. Um, So at this point, it's the status quo remains. Abortions remain legal, remain available. What's been the reaction so far? I'm sure. Well, pro-choice groups, as you can imagine, say this is great news, at least for now, since it's uh, an injunction, so it's temporary. But those Republican prosecutors, not so much. And their attorney is David Coleman, and here's what he had to say. I don't know. I mean, the judges ruled. That's that's their job. That's what he does. Uh, you know, he did. We disagree. We're going to appeal. That's the way the process works. We're going to go up the Court of Appeals. So next stop, another court. But like I said, pro-choice advocates say this is good news. For example, this is Michigan's chief medical, ex- chief medical executive, Natasha Bagdasarian. And she says the alternative to this is a lot of fear and confusion. I think it really chills that sort of uh, doctor-patient-private relationship. I'm also concerned about physicians around the state of Michigan under fear of prosecution for actually performing their duty to their patients. And Rick, what about the call for a constitutional amendment? Where does that fit in? I'm sure um, that's another twist. A petition campaign has submitted 475,000 plus signatures to put a reproductive rights amendment on the November ballot. And today's decision, if it holds up, will actually keep things as they are until November. All right. That is Rick Pluta of the Michigan Public Radio Network with the latest from that state. Thanks so much, Rick. Oh, glad to do it. The Colorado River is shrinking. That prompted federal managers this week to issue mandatory cutbacks for some who use its water and more are needed. As states that rely on the Colorado River look for other ways to bolster their supply, some are asking if a process called desalination could help. But as Alex Hager of member station KUNC reports, that technology comes with big trade-offs. It's a picture-perfect afternoon in Southern California. The sun is beating down on a volleyball game in the sand, and a surfer is paddling out into the waves. And just across the road from the beach, this salty seawater is getting a new life at the largest desalination plant on the continent. Michelle Peters, the plant's technical manager, pours a glass from the tap. At 10 a.m., you have the morning surfers swimming in it, uh, just off the, you know, off the coast in the ocean here. Carlsbad, now it's high quality drinking water, ready for consumption. Peters explains how this plant pulls from the ocean, removes the impurities and salt, and makes that water drinkable. She walks through a sprawling web of tanks and pipes where the breeze delivers an occasional whiff of low tide. This is where the magic happens. This is really what makes desal, desal. It's the heart of the site. Desalination isn't affected by drought, and San Diego County, which gets most of its water from the Colorado River, added this facility to make themselves less reliant on water sources that could dry up. 
With federal managers asking states all around this parched region to make huge cuts in the water they use from the Colorado River, some are asking if plants like this could help other states. Earlier this year, for example, Arizona Governor Doug Ducey proposed funding a new desal facility across the border in Mexico in exchange for some of that country's Colorado River water. Instead of just talking about desalination, how about we pave the way to make it actually happen? But taking water from the ocean comes with a catch. It costs a lot of money just to make a little water ready to drink. And that water costs a lot to move. The whole thing is really energy intensive. If they get desperate enough, that could work. Jay Lund studies the economics of water at the University of California, Davis. He says before turning to desalination, cities should look to other ways to stretch their water supply, getting rid of lawns, capturing stormwater, and recycling wastewater. And there's one other big alternative on his mind. The bulk of the new water is almost certainly going to have to come from following some of the agriculture, which is already most of the water used in the western states. Nearly 80 percent of the water from the Colorado River is used by that sector, and following or paying farmers and ranchers to pause growing on their land would free up supply. While experts agree that desalination isn't going to solve the Colorado River crisis, Sharon Megdal, who studies water policy at the University of Arizona, says the Southwest shouldn't write it off completely. When we're looking at the full mix and the full portfolio, I think there's a role for desalinated seawater. And the fact is, it will take time to get projects permitted and built. And so you have to think ahead. Megdal says desalination is still worth more research. Even though it may not be a silver bullet, it could be a small part of diversifying the water supply in some areas as the Colorado River keeps drying up. For NPR News, I'm Alex Hager in Carlsbad, California. One week ago today, an unusual little video game called Cult of the Lamb was released for several gaming platforms, and it immediately soared to the top of the sales charts, one million copies already sold across all platforms, and, well, it seems to be developing a cult following of its own. So guide your flock, grow your power, and spread the word of the lamb. NPR Pop Culture Happy Hour host Glenn Weldon counts himself among the growing flock. Hey, Glenn. Hey, Wana. All right, so I've downloaded this game, but I wanted to wait to play it until I talked with you, so I need you to get us up to speed here. The name makes this game sound incredibly creepy, but I'm guessing that is not the full story. No, not the full story. Uh, This game is, uh, well, it's adorable is what it is because your character is this cute, cartoony baby sheep. You got these big, huge Disney character eyes and you're tasked with gathering followers. And your followers are also cartoony little animals, little piggies and deer and kitties and bears. And they got the same great big saucer eyes you do. Mm, It's very sweet, very sunny, um, at least on the surface, because your job is to get your followers to worship you. And you do that by keeping them happy. Uh, They need to eat, you build them a farm. They need to sleep, you build them shelter. They need to poop, you build them outhouses. Want to start building outhouses right away because that's very important. If you don't, they're going to poop all over the place and then they're going to get sick. Um, So the more stuff you do for them, the higher their faith in you rises, which gives you the power you need to go out and do your cult leader stuff, like uh, going out into the world and gathering more followers and slaughtering other cults. It's its just adorably sinister, this game. Think, think Animal Crossing meets Helter Skelter. Okay, Glenn, we were talking about cute animals with saucer eyes, and now this is taking kind of a dark turn. Is this a dark game? Uh, well, it certainly can be. It doesn't have to be, though, because it gives you a lot of choices about what kind of cult you build, what kind of cult leader you become. 
Now, you could be the kind who sacrifices your followers and brainwashes them with magic mushrooms, um, and that'll give you a quick faith boost, sure, but it's got long-term repercussions because your followers are individuals. And some of them are going to be horrified that you sacrificed their little piggy friend, and a mushroom <laughs> trip is going to leave them exhausted. And if you don't do anything about that, they're going to turn on you and start sowing dissent among your flock. On the other hand, you could be the kind of cult leader who keeps your followers faithful by offering them little blessings or hearing their confessions. Uh, now, the more you play, the more the line separating cult from organized religion becomes a distinction without a meaningful difference. <laughs> so, uh, now, one thing that giving you so many choices does, of course, is open up the game's replay value. Because once you finish, you just go back and play as an entirely different kind of cult leader. And I mean, come on, who does not want to be a cult leader? But Glenn, my understanding is that managing a cult is just one part of this game. Yeah, the other half is dungeon crawling. Uh, to get more followers and to get the resources you need to keep them happy, you're going to have to leave your compound every so often, go out into the world. The game generates a series of short, random dungeons for you to make your way through and gives you weapons to take down your enemies. And then ultimately you'll meet rival cult leaders and you'll defeat them in boss battles. <laughs> The combat is fine, it's nothing special, but what it does do is it gives you a much needed break from the constant demands of your followers who can be a pretty whiny bunch. Uh, so after a long day of cooking them grass soup and emptying their outhouses, it's fun to jump back into a dungeon to take out your frustrations on a few demon frogs or wizard crows or whatever they are. And that's the appeal, right? That's the secret here. I think there have been games where you manage resources before, and Lord knows there have been games where you crawl through dungeons before, but the way Cult of the Lamb combines them, it's, uh, it's really smart. It's really fun. And as I say, this game, it's adorably unsettling. All right. Cult of the Lamb is out on various platforms now. Glenn Weldon, host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Thank you. The Lamb provides one. <laughs> Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Stocks chalked up a weekly loss. The Dow fell 0.86% today. That's 292 points to finish the week at 33,707. SP dropped more than one and a quarter percent to close at 4228. That snaps a four-week-long rally. And the Nasdaq sank 2% to close at 12,705. Shares in Boston-based Wayfair fell 20% in trading today. That's after the home goods company reported it's letting go 870 workers to cut costs. That represents 5% of its entire workforce. 400 of those losing jobs are in Boston. Wayfair sales have fallen sharply since the 2020 boom when furniture sales spiked during the early pandemic lockdowns. Marketplace has business news at 6.30. It's now 4.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA Watershed in East Boston. Ride the water shuttle to see art on both sides of the harbor. Tickets at icaboston.org. And Prompt.com, with a mission to help students stand out on their college applications and get into their top colleges through one-on-one application and essay coaching. More at Prompt.com. 
Once again today, there's a greater risk of wildfires thanks to the drought combined with some strong winds. The strongest gusts could happen in southeastern Mass, but the wildfire danger exists through the Bay State, Rhode Island, and Connecticut as well. Tonight, a few clouds around, light winds dipping to the upper 60s. Tomorrow should come back, uh, the sunshine should come back, light winds too, around 90 degrees. Could have a quick shower or thunderstorm tomorrow afternoon. And then for the second half of the weekend, look for sunshine. Should be in full force on Sunday, breezy with highs in the 80s. 90 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Avalara with tax compliance software for businesses, working to help companies big and small to turn tax complexity into simplicity. More at avalara.com. And from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users, Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In Oregon, a very open rift between the state Supreme Court's chief justice and the head of the public defense agency has threatened to undermine trust in the court system. The rift led to an overhaul of an oversight commission, the firing of that public defense chief, and allegations of judicial overreach. Meanwhile, across the state, hundreds of people charged with crimes do not have access to a public defender. Oregon Public Broadcasting's Conrad Wilson has more. For roughly the last eight months, Steve Singer has served as the executive director for the state agency in Oregon responsible for public defense. About an hour before he was fired yesterday, Singer declared the commission that would decide his fate a complete sham. This is what happens in in third world tin pot dictatorships. That nine-member commission oversees Oregon's public defense system and the executive director. That would be Singer. Members are appointed solely by the state's Supreme Court Chief Justice. And that structure contributed to this week's drama. Uh, We've been in chaos of Mr. Singer's making. That's Oregon Supreme Court Chief Justice Martha Walters. The rift between Singer and Walters started over how to address a very real shortage of public defenders. The Constitution guarantees the right to an attorney for people charged with crimes. But in Oregon, more than 700 people are without an attorney, including many in custody. Walters wanted immediate solutions to address the shortage, and while Singer provided a plan, he was also focused on larger concerns that affect public defenders, such as caseloads and attorney retention. Yesterday, before he was fired, Singer condemned the process that led up to that moment as a case of judicial overreach. And this is the most, the, the most significant frontal attack on the independence of public defense ever in the United States, and it is frightening. It is scary. So here's what happened. Last week, Chief Justice Walters asked the commissioners to fire Singer. They were deadlocked. So on Monday, Walters fired the entire commission. An unprecedented move. Then on Tuesday, Walters appointed a new commission that included five previous members, most of whom had voted to fire Singer. Walters explained her actions. I never anticipated exercising my statutory authority to remove and reset the commission but the issues that we face in public defense are so urgent. I couldn't allow the dysfunction and the distractions to continue. But for now, it has continued. 
Walters is a longtime justice in Oregon and is well-respected. But replacing a commission so it would fire Singer has stunned corners of the legal community that believe public defense should operate without political or judicial interference. Problems with Oregon's public defense system date back years. A 2019 report commissioned by state lawmakers raised concerns about the chief justice's influence over public defense and recommended other branches of government share oversight responsibilities. Various state officials have been giving this lip service for a long time. Jason Williamson is the executive director of the Center on Race, Inequality, and the Law at NYU School of Law. People are being distracted by this sideshow and forgetting about the fact that we still have hundreds, at least, um, if not thousands of people who are without counsel and have been without counsel for months on end, including people in custody. A state working group was formed this spring to explore solutions, but Williamson is skeptical. He's one of several attorneys suing the state for not providing lawyers to those charged with crimes. He says if he had any confidence the state was going to act, he wouldn't have filed a lawsuit. For NPR News, I'm Conrad Wilson in Portland. Many high school science or art rooms have a human skeleton hanging next to a chalkboard or by a teacher's desk. And many of those skeletons, they're made with real bones. Reporter Alyssa Nadwerny of the NPR Ed team had one in her high school in Erie, Pennsylvania. And a few years back, she set out to find out whose bones they were. This is one of Alyssa's favorite stories she's ever reported. And it's back to school season, so we're bringing you this encore. Many of these skeletons around the country have names. There's Mr. Bones in New Mexico, Lord Dooley in North Carolina, and Courtney in Rhode Island. The one at Northwest Pennsylvania Collegiate Academy, where I went, doesn't have a name, but it does have a story, and I wanted to know it. So I brought Adam Cole, the science reporter behind NPR's Skunk Bear video series, back home with me to Erie. That was our lunch table, corner table. Oh, yeah. Music classes are down there. And when we walked into Kim Leisure's art class, room 17. There it is. Wow. Oh my gosh, just hanging up there. In the back of the classroom, our skeleton. He's really strung together, huh? Yeah. Mrs. Leisure has been using it to teach ceramics. She says it's way better than a plastic reproduction. It's much more um, real, real life. But where is it from? I have no idea where he came from, but he was passed down from art teacher to art teacher. Did you know how long it's been here? It could have been here for a uh, hundred years. We asked the principal, James Vieira. The lore is that it came from Ganges in some type of accident or washout. We consistently hear that it's male based on the bone structure. So the question is, is that story true? All right, great. The folks in Erie let us pack up the bones so we could investigate. The more I researched human skeletons, all the clues pointed to India, where for decades there was a somewhat shady but legal trade in human remains. It started in the mid-1800s. At its height, Calcutta was exporting about 60,000 human skeletons every year. That's Scott Carney. He's an expert on India's bone trade and the author of The Red Market. These are the poorest of poor people in the world, and when they died, then their bodies were sold. It was a horrendous situation. And yet the legal trade persisted until the 1980s. So our skeleton could have come from the Ganges region, like the principal thought. But we needed science, so we took the skeleton to Mercyhurst University, to a bunch of forensic anthropologists, and we consulted with the Smithsonian, and sent a small sample of the bone to a lab at Penn State. After about four months, we got the results. 
I called Principal Vieira and Mrs. Leisure to fill them in. Well, hello there. So I want to just tell you what we heard back. Well, we're excited. I was wondering the other day, I'm like, when do we want to hear back? The first thing I tell them, it's a female. What? Oh. Okay. She died in her mid-20s and was about 5'2", and her ancestry, probably Asian. Okay, interesting. From the chemical signature in her bones, she ate land plants and animals, not things like corn or fish, which means she lived somewhere continental, like India. And so then the final analysis we did was they carbon dated the bones to find out how old they were. Okay. I tell them it's most likely that this person lived from 1875 to 1920, which fits right in that bone trade timeline. Wow. Holy cow. Pretty amazing what you can find out. Right, yeah. It becomes, you know, a person more than just an object. I think that's the part that's like kind of freaking me out a little bit. So, like a lot of schools with skeletons like this, my old high school faces a decision. Should they bury it, like a school in the UK did? or continue to use it as a teaching tool? Perhaps it's a question for the students. What is our moral obligation to these bones? Alyssa Nadorny, NPR News, Erie, Pennsylvania. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Red Sox road trip continues tonight. They're now in Baltimore for a three-game series with the Orioles. Cutter Crawford pitches for Boston tonight, and tomorrow's game will be at Camden Yards, and then Sunday's closing game will be out in Williamsport, Pennsylvania at the Little League World Series. Tomorrow, by the way, the Middleborough Little League team takes the field again for an elimination game against Holidaysburg, Pennsylvania. Middleborough lost to Tennessee in the first game. Once again, there's a greater risk of wildfires out there thanks to drought combined with some strong winds. So be careful out there. The strongest gusts could be in southeastern Mass. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 430. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering part-time graduate programs in applied business analytics on campus or online. Learn the concepts, tools, and techniques used in the process of making informed, data-driven business decisions. Learn more at bu.edu met. I'm Asma Khalid, and I love a good story. That's why I love NPR's politics beat. There's always plenty of drama and suspense. Your car has a story, too. It's been there for daily life and memorable events. So when it's time for a new car, let your old car do one more good deed. Donate it to this station, and we'll turn it into tomorrow's stories. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The Justice Department is facing a deadline in a week to comply with a federal judge's order to produce an affidavit related to the search of former President Trump's Florida residence, Mar-a-Lago. NPR's Greg Allen tells us that document, when it's finally made public, is likely to have significant portions blacked out. Government lawyers said they believe the entire affidavit, which established probable cause for the search of Mar-a-Lago, should remain sealed. At a hearing in West Palm Beach, they warned making it public could endanger witnesses and agents identified and provide a roadmap to a criminal investigation still in its early stages. 
Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt said he agreed with media organizations that the affidavit could be released with sensitive information about witnesses and the investigation redacted. He ordered the government to submit a redacted version of the document by Thursday. He'll review it, discuss revisions with the government, and likely order its release. That might take some time. Reinhardt says he'll stay his order to unseal the affidavit until all appeals are exhausted. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. A Chinese court has sentenced a former billionaire to 13 years in prison, fining him and his company more than $8 billion for illegal use of funds and bribery. NPR's Emily Fang tells us he disappeared from a luxury Hong Kong hotel he was living in five years ago. In 2017, Chinese security agents abducted Xiao Jianghua from his hotel, drugged him, then smuggled him into mainland China in a wheelchair, where he disappeared until his trial this month. His case was seen as a sign the separation between Hong Kong and the mainland was dissolving. Xiao is a naturalized Canadian citizen, but the Canadian embassy in Beijing said they were denied access to his trial. NPR's Emily Fang, the former billionaire, was once connected to some of China's most powerful and elite families, even managing and protecting their money. On Wall Street, stocks finished lower to end the week. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The MBTA Orange Line should be shutting down. That shutdown is just around the bend. The Orange Line will close for repairs for one month starting at 9 o'clock tonight. Black and Asian business leaders say the MBTA needs to do more to support communities of color in particular during the shutdown. WBUR's John Bender has more. Leaders with the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts and the Asian Business Empowerment Council say the month-long closure will disproportionately impact communities of color. Kareem Kibodia works on policy for the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts. He says the MBTA needs to provide clear communication to residents in affected neighborhoods. And so we'll really be looking to make sure that they are sticking to the timeline that they established, that the repairs are conducted effectively and efficiently. And then it does lead to the question of, of what's next. The groups are also asking the MBTA to commit to hiring a diverse workforce for this and future projects. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm John Bender. The northern portion of the Green Line also closes for four weeks on Monday for track work. Fire crews continue to uh, battle brush fires across parts of Massachusetts in this extremely dry weather. For fourth day, fires in the Breakheart State Reservation and Saugus have closed the park. It'll stay closed through tomorrow. Fire officials say there's heavy smoke and fire along the park path. The Saugus Fire Department says the fires are suspicious. Active fires are also burning in wooded areas of Lynn and Rockport. Some of the noisiest animals in the ocean are actually pretty small. They're called snapping shrimp. And new research finds they may be getting louder as the ocean is getting warmer. As WBR's Barbara Moran explains, the noisier ocean could have far-reaching impact on underwater navigation and communication for animals and for humans. What is the sound of one shrimp snapping? How about thousands? That's the soundscape of many coral reefs. Aaron Mooney, a biologist at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, says warmer waters mean more snapping. And that's what we think is happening on the reefs. The reefs are getting louder because these animals are getting more active. And the changing climate affects the whole ecosystem of sound. That's really fundamental for animals because that's how they communicate to each other. That's how they attract mates. A louder ocean could impact humans, too, like interfering with sonar. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. The forecast is coming up. It's 435. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, sponsor of Growing Healthy Futures with Greater Boston Food Bank, mathworks.com slash gbfb. Sunny, windy, dry weather continues tonight, or, or today that is, and overnight tonight should be partly cloudy. Temperatures in the 60s, then for tomorrow, sunshine, highs in the 80s, pretty much the same thing for Sunday. Sunshine, highs in the 80s, could have a brief shower tomorrow afternoon. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help people simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at AmazonBusiness.com and from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. One of the key provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act that President Biden signed into law this week aims to make electric vehicles more mainstream. But instead of making it easier to qualify for a $7,500 tax credit, the administration is placing more restrictions on vehicles and buyers. NPR's Arzu Resvani is here to explain why. Hi, Arzu. Hi. All right. So explain why. If I want to buy an electric vehicle, how does this bill help me? Well, long term, it's meant to drive prices down. Electric vehicles have always been very expensive. Right now, the average price of an EV is $66,000. And that price point is one reason why EV sales have been low despite strong interest. Last year, for example, only about 3% of all auto sales were electric. Hmm. So what this law intends to do is push automakers to produce more affordable options and expand their customer base. That's why this tax credit has an income cap. If you make more than $150,000 as a single person or double that as a couple, you won't get this tax credit. And again, it's because they want to incentivize automakers to really start catering to a wider range of buyers, not just high income earners. You mentioned the income cap. That's one requirement to get this tax credit. Walk me through. There are other caveats. Okay, so there are quite a few. Hang with me. If you want to qualify for the full $7,500 today, the car has to be assembled in North America. And this one requirement alone has already disqualified dozens of EVs from the tax credit. Automakers like Hyundai or Toyota are out, but certain Ford models, certain Rivian models, the Nissan Leaf, they're among cars that still qualify for now. Other provisions take effect in January, and they will disqualify even more cars from the tax credit. So electric sedans have to be $55,000 or less. It's a bit more for bigger cars. There's also a price cap for used cars. Finally, those all-important EV batteries, not only must some of the components be in North America, a lot of what's in those batteries have to come from the U.S. or a trading partner. 
But still, it sounds like these restrictions will disqualify so many cars, which seems counter to the goal of of getting more electric vehicles out there, getting more people right. to buy them. What, what's the thinking? Well, this is part of a really big push to reorient the, the supply chain and bring production back to the U.S. The administration wants to reduce dependency on China. I talked to Michael Fisk from S&P Global about this, and he really views this initiative as a matter of national security. We've seen uh, a lot of the challenges that have come from being reliant on the Middle East and for oil for the last you know, half century or more. Now, I think there are some valid concerns about becoming overly reliant on Asian countries for the processing and manufacturing of batteries and battery-related uh, materials for the next decade or 50 years. And Arzu, just briefly, what about the car companies? Where are they in all this? It's going to be very challenging for them to make this shift. You know, just finding new countries to do business with for those minerals and the batteries, that's a big undertaking. It will take time. But long term, if automakers do bring production to the U.S. Mm -hmm. and attract more customers, that could really catapult the EV market into the mainstream in ways we haven't seen before. All right, Arzu Vazvani, thanks so much. You're welcome. There has been a lot of focus on how the war in Ukraine is affecting its most important industry, agriculture. The country is traditionally one of the world's largest exporters of wheat, corn, and sunflower oil. But as NPR's Jason Bobian tells us, war is also having a devastating effect on Ukraine's second leading source of export revenue, its iron and steel industry. During Soviet times, Ukraine was sort of the Pittsburgh of the USSR. It was the industrial heartland built around coal mines and big hulking steel mills. And in several parts of Ukraine, these mills still dominate the landscape, the local economy, and even civic identity. In the city of Zaporizhia, the Zaporistal steel plant is a gray industrial complex sprawling over more than two square miles. Every day, the plant's giant blast furnaces convert tons of raw iron ore into a stream of molten orange pig iron and liquefied slag byproduct. So here at this place, they are divided and uh, cast iron goes here and slag goes there. Serhii Safanov, the head of the blast furnace shop at Zaporizhstal, says earlier this year, all four of the plant's blast furnaces had to be dialed back to what he calls a low idle as Russian troops got close to the city. Those forces were pushed back, but the plant is still operating at less than 50 percent of capacity. Officials say they have enough raw materials inside Ukraine to keep pumping out rolls of sheet metal and cast iron bars. But they now have a huge backlog of processed metal sitting in Ukrainian warehouses. The main difficulty here is the logistics. Yuri Rajenkov is the head of Metinvest Group, which owns the Zaporizhstal plant. Traditionally, our company and any company in Ukraine who were exporting the steel and iron ore via the Black Sea ports or Azov Sea ports. At the moment, the ports are blocked by the Russians. While a few ships carrying grain have been allowed to leave Ukraine recently, there's still no agreement to allow vessels ferrying other goods to transit the Black Sea. Some of the Ukrainian steel is getting sent by rail to ports in Poland and Romania, but it's slow and expensive. And adding to the logistical challenges, Ukraine's railways operate on different gauge track than the Western Europeans, meaning cargo has to get transferred at the border. This was never envisaged as the main export route for the steel industry in Ukraine. As difficult as it is to get steel from Zaporizhstal to Metinvest customers in Turkey, Italy, and North Africa, the Zaporizhia factory at least is still in Metinvest's hands. 
In Mariupol, Russian forces relentlessly bombed Metinvest Azovstal ironworks in order to capture it and finally take full control of Mariupol. While Azovstal is now better known, it was actually the smaller of two steel plants owned by Metinvest in Mariupol. The other, the Illich Steel and Ironworks, spread over more ground and with 14,000 employees had more workers than Azovstal. It too was seized by Russian troops in April. At some point in time, we'll come back to Mariupol and see what is the state of Azovstal and Illich Mill and, and see if they can be restored. Earlier this year, Metinvest was paying its idled employees two-thirds of their salaries, including at the Mariupol plants now controlled by the Russians. But in June, the company had to lay off thousands of workers. Marzhenkov says the company right now is focused on survival. The challenges facing Metinvest are similar for other Ukrainian steelmakers and industrial firms, particularly in the east of the country. There are a number of really problematic trends that will compound over time. Andrew Lowson, up until last year, was based in Ukraine as an analyst for the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. One of them is the fact that these industries are highly dependent on coal that is mined in areas that are behind enemy lines now or, or in areas that are close to the fighting. Lowson is now a fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. He says the industrial capacity of Ukraine right now is severely strained because so much of its manufacturing sector is in or near the most active fighting in eastern Ukraine. He says the one potential silver lining for Ukrainian industry is that the Russian bombing campaigns mean that there are lots of roads, bridges, and other infrastructure that need to be rebuilt. Jason Bobian, NPR News. And this is All Things Considered from NPR News. The T, Boston's transit system, is about to go is about to undergo two major shutdowns for maintenance. The month-long closure of an entire subway line starts tonight, affecting nearly a third of Boston subway riders. But as member station WBUR's Simone Rios reports, riders are doubtful the shutdowns will fix the ailing subway. A group of local musicians newly named the Mystic River Ramblers plays on an Orange Line platform this week, a version of a Boston classic reworked for the shutdown. Boston's subway is the oldest in the country, and in recent years it's been the site of a breathtaking array of bad events. One man got his arm caught in a closing door and was dragged to death, and just weeks ago a car caught on fire on a bridge, leading one rider to jump into the Mystic River below. Earlier this year, the Federal Transit Administration began investigating the T. Then state transit officials this month decided to shut down the Orange Line, giving just two weeks notice of the closure that starts tonight. Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker says the shutdown is needed to fix aging infrastructure. Doing 24-7 shutdowns for 30 days will allow the T to speed up upgrades and it will result in a smoother and faster Orange Line. Days after the Orange Line shutdown was announced, officials said part of another line would also close for a month of maintenance. Boston schools are about to open, and city officials are scrambling to ease the impact of the closed subway with dedicated bus lanes, free bike rentals, and help for affected businesses. But many subway users are dubious about the benefits of a shutdown. Mella Bush heads the T-Riders Union in Boston. She says even these month-long closures might not be enough. What is it going to fix? 
we don't want to put a band-aid on it because this will just keep perpetuating itself. And, you know, we're tired. You know, we want to feel safe. There's so many safety issues on the MBTA right now. Lots of riders also think the T should have shut down the subways during the pandemic when ridership was way down, or at least before the start of the school year. But one thing officials agree with advocates on is that the T's problems are the result of decades of underinvestment. And the state's former transportation chief, Jim Aloisi, says Boston subway could herald what's in store in other cities. As federal relief funding diminishes, as ridership is slower to recover, and as agencies face the harsh reality that they cannot depend on fair revenue as they used to, it's a cautionary tale to every other transit agency and system in the country. And that tale, he adds, says we need to invest more in public transportation. Approaching. Lucy Salado of Somerville rides the Orange Line to get to her job downtown every weekday. It's normally a straight shot, but now she's planning to ride shuttle buses for two hours each way. And together with the rising cost of rent in Boston, it's making her reconsider living in the city. With winter coming, if something like this were to happen again, again, I'm expecting, so I just can't really take that risk right now. Another daily Orange Line rider is Victor Martinez. He says he's hopeful the shutdown will make the tea better, and he's ready for whatever inconveniences come his way. If a soldier has to prepare to win a battle, Martinez says, then we can ride shuttle buses to get to where we need to go. For NPR News, I'm Simon Rios in Boston. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. This reminder, the orange line closure that starts at 9 tonight is not the only transportation change in the works. The Sunra Tunnel between East Boston and downtown Boston will close again this weekend. It's going to be shut down every weekend except for holiday weekends from Friday at 11 p.m. to Monday at 5 a.m. for repairs. Coming up next on WBUR, Rogers and Hammerstein, Cinderella, the movie, 25 years after its release. A dry and hot weekend is on the way tonight. A few clouds, light winds dipping just to the upper 60s. Tomorrow, sunshine should come back. The light winds as well, back up around 90 degrees. Could have a quick shower or a thunderstorm tomorrow afternoon. And then for the rest of the weekend, Sunday should have sunshine and full force breezy with temperatures in the high 80s. 90 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at mathworks.com careers. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, laurenholleran.com. We walk around our little bubbles of certainty. They're occasionally rudely shattered, like, the sudden emergence of a pandemic, or worse, you know, we sort of think we can run our lives. We really can't. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. 25 years ago, a classic fairy tale became a very modern TV event. Impossible. 
Disney produced an adaptation of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella. It starred Grammy winner Brandy in the title role. Impossible. Impossible. The late legendary Whitney Houston as the fairy godmother, alongside a notably diverse cast of Broadway, recording, and TV talent. That includes actor Paolo Montalban, who starred opposite Brandy as the charming Prince Christopher. He joined the rest of the cast for a 25th anniversary reunion special that's airing next week on ABC. I spoke with Paolo earlier this week about the history that he had a part in making as a Filipino prince courting a black prince. Princess, and I asked him what went through his head when he first learned that he'd landed the role. Uh, well, actually, not much was going through my head because I didn't really um, actually know what the scope of the production was going to be. I thought it was going to be for a small public access channel. <laughs> uh, and when I auditioned with Brandy, that's when I that's when I realized that it was probably going to be something bigger than that. This was no small production, as we were saying. This was an iconic production. Now, when you were auditioning for this, was there a particular song from the musical that you had to sing? Yes. So um, they had me sing 10 minutes ago and Do I Love You Because You're Beautiful. And we also did a couple of scenes. I believe the first scene was um, when I bump into Cinderella in the, in the market square. Wait, what's your name? Cinderella. Beg your pardon? <laughs> now, you and Brandy had chemistry, not just as on-screen actors, but also as singers. What was it like working together? Well, it felt like working with one of your best friends, even though we weren't actually um, close friends, you know, to begin with. But I guess that's what chemistry is about, right? You feel like you've known each other all your lives. And um, so it was incredibly easy. She made my job, if I won't even want to call it that, incredibly easy. Uh, what was really interesting about the singing aspect, the singing chemistry, is that Brandy was coming from a, uh, a pop artist background and I was coming from a Broadway musical background. And our um, music director, Paul Bogave, smartly had Brandy pretend like she was an opera singer and he had me pretend like I was uh, George Michael. So the No way. Our um yeah, yeah. So so our singing styles became closer to each other's. You and the cast experienced something that happens a lot today and that's criticism, if not outright outrage over actors of color playing characters who had previously been portrayed as white. Do y'all discuss that at all in the reunion special? Yes, at least I can I can say that from my end. I brought up um, how I actually thought the industry wasn't ready for for our a colorblind casting a version of Cinderella, but how society was, because the response to it was one of overwhelming acceptance and gratitude. I mean, the magic of something like this is the idea that it doesn't matter what color you are. You can be a prince. You can be a princess. You can be a fairy godmother. You mentioned that you thought that society was ready for that, but that the industry wasn't. 25 years later, has the industry caught up? I would say 25 years later, the industry definitely has caught up. You can see examples of it in um, other period-type dramas uh, that have non-traditional casting, like Bridgerton, or you have uh, people of color playing traditionally Caucasian uh, characters in history in, uh, say, Hamilton, right? So I think that that proof, proof of concept uh, that we did back in 1997 has permeated throughout the industry in a very positive way. 
Now, there was not social media at the time, but there was some artistic criticism that happened during the premiere. Okay. A New York Times review had some praise, but it said, and I'm quoting here, mm. this is a cobbled together Cinderella for the moment, not the ages. Mm. But wow. we are still here. We are still talking about yeah. it 25 years later. And on social media today, there has been so much buzz of people excited to see this reunion. Did the New York Times have it wrong? <laughs> I guess I could say maybe the New York Times got it wrong because um, because I have people who say that this is their Cinderella and it, it's the uh, it's the only Cinderella that they'll acknowledge. Um, and to me, that kind of ownership means that it's the it's the Cinderella that spoke to them the most. And so it wasn't of the time it was it's it's the kind of story that they want to share with their children and watch it over and over and over again. What has it been like to revisit this movie and that moment in time? I know there's been a lot of positive, but you all have also lost two cast members in Whitney Houston mm. and Natalie DeSalle, who played one of the Wicked Stepsisters. Yes. Losing our, our beloved Whitney Houston and Natalie DeSalle Reed was, I don't know. I don't know how to say it. It was, it was crushing because it was like, it, it really felt like losing family members. We worked together for... 10 weeks total. And we put together a family that that kind of loss, it just can't be replaced. But, uh, you know, they live on in our hearts and in the, in the art that they left behind. I'm hoping that you can tell us about a favorite memory of yours being on set during those 10 weeks. I think um, a favorite moment that I had when I was on set was uh, during the ball sequence, because of the very nature of Cinderella, the different characters aren't always under the same roof, right? But you know, everyone kind of shows up for the ball. And it was just really nice to see Brandy, Whoopi, Jason, Victor, Bernadette, Vianne, Natalie, all there. And um, getting to see the fruits of, of our collective labor, not just the cast, but uh, the production design team. It was, it was a really special moment. It really felt like a fairy tale, like a real-life fairy tale. Everyone's staring at us. Really? I'd forgotten there was anyone else here. Ten minutes ago, I saw you. This particular moment when um, we were waltzing the uh, ten minutes ago, uh, and we had the, the cameraman also waltzing with us. <laughs> so I thought that was, I thought that was really, really, um, that was really neat and innovative. And then when we saw it on screen, it was just, it really felt like the prince and Cinderella were falling in love. What did you get out of this reunion special? And what are you hoping that audiences will take away from it? Hmm. Being able to re-examine the feelings and the, the memories from 25 years ago. And also having those 25 years to process it and, and see the impact that it's had on the industry, on our society, on the way that boys and girls of all different colors and ethnicities, the way they see themselves and the way they see what's possible for them. It's a real gift. Paolo Montalban, one of the stars of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella, which is celebrating its 25th anniversary. He's in the 2020 reunion special that airs August 23rd on ABC and will later stream on Hulu. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you so much, Juana. This is NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Culligan Water, since 1936, committed to providing cleaner and safer filtered water on demand while working to help reduce the number of plastic bottles going into landfills. Learn more at Culligan.com. From Mattress Firm, whether browsing online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. And from CrowdStrike, their cloud-native platform is designed to protect businesses from cyber attacks, ransomware, and data theft at home, at the office, and everywhere in between. More at crowdstrike.com NPR. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The polio virus has appeared in two counties in New York. Health officials have turned to seniors to persuade younger members of their families to get the vaccine. Your elders hold a lot of sway. You can't argue with a grandparent who's paralyzed, who says, you don't want this. It's Friday, August 19th. This is All Things Considered. young adult in New York has become paralyzed from polio. I'm Lisa Mullins, also ahead after nearly two weeks of shelling around a nuclear power plant in southern Ukraine. Russia's President Putin says he will let international inspectors enter the plant. A science professor at Northeastern talks about a new way to present science data to blind and sighted people alike. And humans are sweaty beasts, but four-legged friends are too. NPR reporters have been asking a question. Hello, do you sweat? That's coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is casting doubt on Republicans' ability to win control of the Senate in this year's midterm elections. NPR's Domenico Montanero has more. Speaking before the Northern Kentucky Chamber of Commerce, McConnell delivered this blunt assessment of his party's chances. Yeah, I think there's probably a greater likelihood the House flip than the Senate. Senate races are just different. They're statewide. Candidate quality has a lot to do with the outcome. Several hardline GOP candidates aligned with former President Trump won primaries in key swing states and are now struggling against their Democratic opponents. Democrats currently control the 50-50 Senate because they have the White House. The Republican field of candidates and increased enthusiasm among Democratic voters after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade is giving Democrats hopes they can hold the chamber. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. Transgender girls in Utah could now be allowed to play on girls' sports teams. As NPR's Melissa Block reports, a judge today ruled that the state's new law barring such participation likely violates Utah's constitution. District Court Judge Keith Kelly issued his injunction in favor of the plaintiffs, three transgender girls from 8th to 12th grade who want to compete on girls' teams. Judge Kelly ruled that Utah's transgender sports ban, which took effect last month, discriminates on the basis of sex and causes the girls irreparable harm. The stigma caused by the ban has been immediate, he wrote. But even with this ruling, trans girls won't automatically be allowed to compete on girls' sports teams. A state commission will now consider each student's, quote, physical characteristics to determine eligibility. Melissa Block, NPR News. 
A senior defense official says the latest U.S. military package for Ukraine, valued at $775 million, will help in the southern part of the country, which has been the main battleground in recent weeks. The U.S. package will include armored vehicles, drones, and tow missiles. The White House will hold a summit next month to combat hate and politically motivated violence. NPR's Eric McDaniel has more. It's been five years since Heather Heyer was murdered in her hometown of Charlottesville, Virginia. She was killed while protesting against Nazis, white supremacists, and other extremists who descended on the town for the Unite the Right rally. Joe Biden says the day's violence inspired him to run for president. Now he plans to gather folks working to stop politically motivated violence at the White House. He's calling it the United We Stand Summit. But it's a tall order. An NPR Ipsos poll earlier this year found that one in five Americans, actually a little bit more than that, believe that, quote, sometimes it's okay to engage in violence to protect American culture and values. Eric McDaniel, NPR News. Wall Street lower by the closing bell. The Dow down 292 points. The Nasdaq down 260. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts transportation officials are warning Boston area drivers of likely congestion during the month-long shutdowns of the T's Orange Line starting tonight and part of the Green Line closing early Monday. WBUR Simone Rios has more. The shutdowns are bound to affect road traffic, with an armada of shuttle buses taking to the streets on top of more people driving to work. The state's highway chief, Jonathan Gulliver, expects drivers to spend the first few days of the shutdown figuring out alternate routes. People are going to try things out. They're going to try different routes. They're going to follow ways. They're going to follow Google Maps, Apple Maps, whatever. And they're going to start making decisions that they'll stick with once they develop a new pattern. Gulliver says people who drive near the Orange Line, as well as the northern end of the Green Line, should avoid any discretionary trips there. And if you have to drive, at least try to avoid peak hours. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. Boston City Council President wants the T to expand the hours that shuttle buses will run to and from Chinatown during the Orange Line shutdown. The buses are set to run between 5 and 7 a.m. and 8 p.m. and 1 a.m. Councillor Ed Flynn says that's not enough. The 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. time frame just doesn't work. If an elderly resident of Chinatown had a medical appointment at the Beth Israel at 10 o'clock in the morning, they'd have a difficult time getting there. Flynn says the limited alternative service is a civil rights issue. The T added the shuttle bus service in the neighborhood after residents complained that the buses were initially planned to bypass the area. The T is also expanding Silver Line service to Chinatown during the shutdown. Work in Boston Harbor that will allow larger container ships to come into the port has been completed four months ahead of schedule. The Army Corps of Engineers made the announcement today. The $350 million dredging project deepens channels in the harbor. It allows ships from 18 additional cities worldwide to access the Port of Boston. It also creates a new berthing area for ships and installs three more cargo cranes. In the forecast, a nice evening, a few clouds overnight tonight, temperatures in the upper 60s. Sunny, windy, dry weather continues over the weekend with highs in the low to mid 80s. It is 90 degrees now in the Boston area at 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Procter & Gamble, maker of Aligned Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. 
On a Friday, it's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. President Vladimir Putin says Russia will allow international inspectors to enter a Ukrainian nuclear power plant that Russian forces have occupied for months now. The decision comes after nearly two weeks of shelling around the plant, which the U.N. had warned could lead to a nuclear disaster. For more, we turn now to NPR's Frank Langford in Kiev. Hi, Frank. Hi, Juana. Frank, this seems like a significant development. What can you tell us? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, this came in a call between uh, President Putin and French President Emmanuel Macron. The Kremlin said that Putin has been blaming Ukraine for shelling Russian forces that are inside the plant, but did finally say that he'd allowed inspectors from the International Atomic Energy Agency to come inside the facility. Now, Russia still isn't going to withdraw its forces from the plant or demilitarize the areas the UN has been asking. I haven't seen a timeline on exactly when the inspectors would arrive, and you got to remember, this is a war zone. But it is progress, I think, um, after a dangerous two weeks that had a lot of people here in Ukraine and elsewhere in Europe really worried about what was happening there. Remind us, if you can, where is this plant and just how high are the stakes here? Yeah, it's in the Zaporizhia region. This is in southern Ukraine. The Russians seized it back in March, and the Ukrainians say Russian forces were basically using it as a nuclear shield from which they could fire on Ukrainian troops. And the fear all along has been there could be an artillery strike that could cause either a radiation leak or even a meltdown. That could force millions of people to flee and or seek shelter underground. So people, I think, around the country have been very nervous. The fighting around this plan is part of a much bigger battle in the south of Ukraine, and that has become the focus of this war in recent weeks. How is the fighting playing out there? Yeah, it's really interesting. Ukraine launched this counteroffensive, and it's been trying to take back territory bit by bit. And the main goal seems to be this strategic city of Kherson down in the south. And the Russians took it over in the beginning of the war, and there are signs that they want to annex it, make it part of Russia. Um, they've responded to the Ukrainian attacks by sending a lot of their troops out from the east, where there was a lot of fighting, down to Kherson to try to hold the city. Um, when I was down in this region back in May, the Ukrainians were really struggling. They were really frustrated. They didn't have enough long-range artillery. I've been in touch with people this week. Things have changed a lot. They're very happy to have American long-range howitzers and these HIMARS that we've been talking about a lot, these multiple launch precision rockets. And the military says they're making a really big difference. And what they're allowing the Ukrainians to do is go deep behind enemy lines with these missiles and take out a lot of Russian ammunition. They've knocked out every bridge in the region uh, as a way of cutting off supply lines of the Russians. And this morning I was talking to a guy named Alexei Arostovich. He served as an advisor. He served as an advisor for the Ukrainian president. And this is what he had to say. It's a game-changing weapon. They completely changed the situation as the front line, absolutely. And Russians can't do nothing with hammers. And what he's saying there is the Russians are pretty defenseless against these HIMARS. There's not much they can do. Okay, so the Ukrainians have been getting these HIMARS, those howitzers that you mentioned. And the U.S. just announced today that it will send nearly $800 million worth of additional weapons. Do you have a sense of how that's translating on the battlefield? Well, it's interesting. Arstovich said as recently as June, the Russians, and I think we've been reporting on this, a number of our reporters, that Russians have been basically raining down shells on Ukrainian troops. They've been stuck often in trenches, kind of like sitting ducks. There's not much they can do. These HIMARS have allowed 
basically the Ukrainians have blown up so much ammunition, the Russians now have a lot fewer shells to fire. And so people here, I think, feel that things are beginning to even up between these two armies where it has not been even for almost the entire war. There is a problem, though, Juana. There was, I was mm -hmm. talking to a military source this week who said that many of the infantry, they only have like a month of training, and they don't have, frankly, the psychological fortitude or training to be a part of a mass attack. Now, you can't really blame them. I mean, until recently, these were ordinary civilians. You can understand why they'd be reluctant sure. to be part of a mass ground attack against what is still one of the largest armies in the world. So the result, I think, here is it's still a very slow process, fighting village by village, mile by mile, while trying to starve the Russians of ammunition. Both armies seem to be focusing heavily on Kherson. What's the city's strategic value? You know, this was the first major city Russians took during the invasion. I was there actually before the invasion, maybe a week or so, and it happened pretty quickly. And they set up an occupying administration. So taking it back, I think, would be a big boost to national morale. It would be a huge deal. Also, there's a strategic value here. You take Kherson, if the Ukrainians could take it, it's a launching pad to attack other Russian cities heading east along the Black Sea coast. And as we've been reporting now for months, you know, the Black Sea and the Black Sea coast are incredibly important. If you can control those, you can control the Ukrainian economy, the ability to export grain and other agricultural products. And so both sides now, I think, are pretty much, they have all along, I think, been fighting for the best position that they could get whenever they end up at the negotiating table. And this is how Arstovich put it. We have a hope and we have a plan to make for Russians two or three great defeats on the battlefield, and after that, maybe they, they will be ready for, for real negotiations. And I think that's a lot of what's going on now. Take as much territory as possible, maybe make the enemy think they're losing. Uh, that said, um, even as the conditions have improved for the Ukrainians in the South, this is still a very slow grinding war, Juana. Okay, that is NPR's Frank Langfitt in Kiev. Thank you, Frank. Good to talk. Polio. It was the disease we all thought we could put behind us. And yet, earlier this summer, an individual in New York State contracted the virus and ended up paralyzed. The first such case in decades. NPR's Ari Daniel visited the counties on the front lines of what could be a critical moment in U.S. public health. Dr. Irina Gelman knew about the paralytic case of polio in Rockland early on. She's commissioner of health in Orange County, New York, which is next door. I heard the news from a phone call. Clearly a confirmed case of polio in the United States is major news. Meanwhile, in Rockland County, word of the individual paralytic case circulated among those in local government before it was announced to the public. Mona Montel, chief of staff for the town of Ramapo, remembers what went through her head. Here we go again. She's referring to the pandemic. Do I as an individual and do we collectively as a county and as a community have the strength to go through this again? Polio cannot be cured. And once it's paralytic polio, you're paralyzed. Plain and simple. During COVID, Montel worked on the county's COVID vaccine information campaign alongside Shoshana Bernstein, who calls herself a health communicator. The news of paralytic polio had her in knots. I'll like check my phone <laughs> about seven times a night. I wake up like, oh my God, is there another case? A very small percentage of people with polio become paralyzed. Most of the time, there are no symptoms at all, which is why in public health, just one case of paralytic polio implies a silent outbreak. When I meet Commissioner Gelman outside a municipal building in Orange County, she says it's the tip of the iceberg. 
it's very difficult to predict how many people, but it's definitely a number of individuals that would have to be actively transmitting. Meaning there are more cases, potentially way more cases of polio in these communities than just a single paralytic patient. Then when the county started testing the wastewater for polio, there it was again. Samples taken from both counties going back to May were positive for polio. Then, sequencing the virus's genetic material surfaced something else that was unsettling. There are multiple strains, so they are different, meaning we do know that it's more than one individual. That is, more than one individual shedding poliovirus. In other words, the outbreak isn't contained. I mean, to put it bluntly, it's just disappointing at this point that we are still here. This is a vaccine preventable disease. And had everyone just been up to date on their vaccination, we would have continued to report it as being eradicated. So how did the virus get here? Here's what authorities think happened. A person came to New York State infected with polio. They had likely contracted in another country. They probably were asymptomatic and didn't realize they had the virus. Once they got to New York, where some communities have low vaccination levels, the virus started spreading, eventually causing infection and paralysis in a person in Rockland County. Rockland and neighboring counties have some of the lowest polio vaccination rates for young children in the country. It's a multitude of reasons spread across a multitude of demographics. There's no one single group that is not vaccinated. Shoshana Bernstein says COVID and all the talk of vaccinations just made everyone tired and confused. She's a member of the large ultra-Orthodox Jewish population here, some of whom, she says, choose to live a more insular lifestyle. Social, you know, and secular media is not really something that's brought in. So it's a lot of word of mouth. Which, Bernstein says, makes some within her community vulnerable to anti-vaccine messaging. We always say it's extremely easy to instill fear and extremely difficult to undo it. The county's a mosaic of communities where vaccination rates are also low and there's mistrust of health authorities. Any press release from the CDC is just, no one's even reading it. So Bernstein and Mona Montel, Ramapo's chief of staff, have joined forces to become a vital conduit between all the official public health language and the hearts and minds of their neighbors. The duo show me a large printed infographic hot off the presses. Four versions in English, Spanish, Haitian Creole, and Yiddish. Montal says it's carefully worded. People have had PTSD with the word vaccination, so we're immunizing, we're not vaccinating, and that's the messaging. My dream is that after this, the CDC will actually have like a game plan of, okay, we're using Rockland County as our model, and now we're gonna repeat that model across the country. Back in Orange County, I sit outside with Commissioner of Health, Irina Gelman. She says she doesn't get much sleep these days. She's up at 3.30 every morning. Things haven't let up since she began her job four years ago. We started with a measles outbreak and we've gradually progressed into COVID-19. And simultaneously, we are now dealing with monkeypox and with uh, now polio. 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 I mean, it yes. was gone from here. It was officially eradicated, yes. It does pose a tremendous amount of concern. Ari Daniel, NPR News.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, black activists say voting laws and a new congressional map of Republicans have backed in Florida mean the state's election is happening at a time when black voters there have far less political power than before. That story is still ahead. Stocks chalked up a weekly loss. The Dow fell 0.86% today, or 292 points, to finish the week at 33,707. S&P dropped more than one and a quarter percent to close at 4228 that snaps a four-week long rally the Nasdaq sank two percent to close at 12705 it's 519 we're funded by you our listeners and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season thrilling music and world-class performers await learn more today at bso.org Coming to City Space Thursday, August 25th, a live concert featuring Van Buren Records, an innovative hip-hop collection from Brockton. Tickets are at wbur.org events. And all month long, we're sharing ideas and favorite picks for summer reading, including some with a New England twist. Get in on the fun at wbur.org beachbooks. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are working for people and families living with sickle cell disease and other serious diseases, committed to helping you make a difference and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Pretty glorious weather ahead if you don't mind some heat. At least there'll be a breeze around as there will be tonight. The forecast for tonight, partly cloudy, light breezes, lows about 68. Tomorrow, plenty of sunshine, maybe an afternoon shower, about 90 degrees. Sunday, sunny, highs about 88 degrees, then cooling off early next week. 90 degrees still in the Boston area. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. This coming Tuesday in Florida is primary day. And some activists say this election is happening at a time where black voters in Florida have far less political power than they've had in a long time. They blame Republican-backed voting laws as well as a new congressional map. NPR's Ashley Lopez reports. It's a muggy afternoon, and Ben Frazier is at a park in Jacksonville. He's sitting in a circle with some older black voters from the area. Some of them are dictating their information to volunteers with Frazier's group who are filling out voter registration forms. I want the canvassers to fill out the form. Period, point blank, over and out. There are a few local organizations doing outreach in the park. Frazier's small civil rights group is the Northside Coalition of Jacksonville and is making sure these voters have an updated voter registration record. We don't want your registration forms to be thrown out for any reason. They're doing a lot of different things to suppress the black vote in this city and in this state. Since the 2020 election, Florida Republicans have passed voting bills that Frazier says will make it harder for black people to vote and for groups like his to organize. 
Senate Bill 90 requires people to apply to vote by mail more often and sets new limits on drop boxes. Another, Senate Bill 524, increases and creates new penalties for voter registration organizations for things like turning in forms late. And notably, the law creates a new policing unit focused on voting crimes. Yeah, I mean, I think all of that has a chilling effect. People are afraid of the police. We know that this is just one of many attempts to suppress the black vote. Just yesterday, Republican Governor Ron DeSantis announced this new policing unit is charging 20 people with voting illegally in 2020. He said these individuals had felony convictions that precluded them from getting their voting rights back. He said the charges mark the beginning of the state getting serious about combating alleged voter fraud. Before we proposed this, there were just examples of this stuff seeming to fall through the cracks. So this is the opening salvo. This is not the sum total of 2020. It's unclear, though, whether those charged knew they couldn't vote. We also don't know their race. But black activists say these new laws are part of a larger effort among Republican leaders to diminish black voting power. Earlier this year, a federal judge ruled that SB 90 in particular is part of the state's long and grotesque history of racial discrimination. But an appeals court kept the law in place. In Jacksonville, Reginald Gundy, the pastor at Mount Sinai Missionary Baptist Church, says the state's racial history has motivated his civic engagement group to register more than 100,000 people across North Florida since 2018 and get them to the polls. They don't go to polls. We would, you know, hey, look, you haven't, you registered to vote, but you haven't voted. You need to go vote. We can't tell people who to vote for, but we've been very good at that. And so as a result of that, it has brought about a change in Duval County. In 2020, Joe Biden won Duval County. It was the first time in decades a Democratic presidential nominee won there. Gundy says this change was noticed by Republican leaders in Florida. In fact, he says he thinks this is why Governor DeSantis recently redrew the state's congressional lines to eliminate a seat in Jacksonville where black voters had a lot of influence on who got elected. The way they have reconfigured, <clears throat> redrawn the district in Duval County, has taken away the right for blacks to vote and have a representative in Congress. We'll have a congressional leader without proper representation for who we are. In a memo to state lawmakers, DeSantis said he thought that the district was unconstitutional because it was written to favor one race over another, citing the Equal Protection Clause. Regardless of this reasoning, though, experts say this decision will likely affect turnout among black voters. Andrea Benjamin at the University of Oklahoma says research shows black voter participation suffers when these voters are drawn out of districts with black incumbents. You know, I think that has to do with sort of who's outreaching, who's contacting voters. You know, the old saying of sort of, I didn't vote because no one asked me to, right? This idea that if someone's from your community, not only do you think that they might do a good job representing you, they also might do a better job outreaching to you, right? So mobilizing you to vote. Black activists in Florida say they are undeterred, but they recognize it's going to be harder to organize in this environment. Meanwhile, the state has big elections on the horizon. Republican Governor Ron DeSantis is up for re-election, and Val Demings is vying to oust Senator Marco Rubio. If she wins the uphill battle, Demings would be the state's first black U.S. senator. Ashley Lopez, NPR News. Now, a story about sweat. 
For summer is the time of year for perspiration, and NPR science reporters have launched an investigation. Rebecca Hersher looked into how animals deal with hotter climes, and she gives her report as a series of rhymes. Do animals sweat, my editor said. Hmm, I said as I scratched my head, that's a summertime question that I'd like to answer about all the creatures, from parrots to panthers. To interview critters, I knew where to go. The Maryland Zoo. Oh, hello. That's Cactus the Hawk. Hello, do you sweat? The answer was no from his side of the net. His neighbor, Macaw, was friendly, but didn't sweat either. So I had to go and interview someone who actually knew. I take care of all the animals at our zoo. Ellen Bronson's head vet and says most beasts don't sweat. She says research has proven animals don't sweat nearly as much as humans. We humans are sweaty more than all other apes. When our smooth skin gets moist, it helps heat escape. And that keeps us cool when we're out in the sun. We don't need to rest when there's stuff to be done. Like a zoo to visit. Man, there's so many humans here sweating. I know. (laughs) It's so hot. (laughs) But most warm-blooded beings have fur feathers or hair any moisture or sweat would get trapped under there. So for most creatures, perspire they can't. Instead, on a very hot day, they can pant. Lots of animals pant, way more than just dogs, badgers and deer, cows, even frogs. And birds, like ravens, believe it or not. Hot, hot, hot. Back outside at the zoo, I walk through the heat to the lion enclosure. Um, We do ice treats. Ryan Hayduke helps take care of the cats. He says lions can pant, but it takes more than that. On a very hot day when the shade won't suffice, the lions are lucky. They get special ice. Take some leftover blood from part of their diet. Freeze it into a bloodsicle. I wouldn't try it. So check your vanity. Sweating's part of humanity. We're the moistest of creatures. Of that, be proud. And the next time you're in a big sweaty crowd, don't give in to disgust, self-hate, or frustration. Instead, just give thanks for your perspiration. Be impressed by your sweat, how it glistens and oozes. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. Zzz. 911 dispatchers are in short supply these days. Many who are left are stretched thin. We do- Hear more about the impact of these shortages on Monday afternoon. Ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your station by name. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Red Sox road trip continues tonight with a three-game series in Baltimore. Cutter Crawford pitches for Boston. Tonight and tomorrow's games will be at Camden Yards, and then Sundays will be out in Williamsport, Pennsylvania at the Little League World Series. Tomorrow, by the way, the Middleborough Little League team takes the field once again in that World Series for an elimination game against the Holidaysburg, Pennsylvania team. Middleborough lost to Tennessee in the first game. And the Patriots host the Carolina Panthers tonight in Game 2 of the NFL preseason. The teams have scrimmaged together this week and scuffled, too. ESPN's Mike Reese reports Pat's quarterback Mac Jones and other starters are expected to play tonight. Jones did not appear in the first preseason game last week. Game time tonight is 7 p.m. This is WBUR. It's 530. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Twilight, Los Angeles, 1992, at the ART, Anna DeVere Smith's award-winning play about the L.A. riots. Learn more at amrep.org. I'm Asma Khalid. As a political reporter for NPR, I talk to people around the country about their lives and their needs. And I believe there is one thing we all need, a news source we trust. Tens of millions come to NPR for exactly that. When you donate your old car to this station, we'll turn it into tomorrow's news. The news you trust. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres is visiting Ukraine and says he's alarmed about the condition of a nuclear power plant now occupied by Russia in southern Ukraine. It's where some of the most active fighting between Ukrainian and Russian forces is taking place right now. Common sense must prevail to avoid any actions that might endanger the physical integrity, safety, or security of the nuclear plant. And the facility must not be used as part of any military operation. The U.N. Secretary General says any electricity generated at the plant belongs to Ukraine and demanded that that principle be fully respected. Russia and Ukraine blame each other for shelling and attacks at the facility, while while Ukraine's president is demanding that Russian forces get out of the nuclear plant. A study out of Texas examines what's known as long COVID, providing new insights into symptoms such as shortness of breath and chest pains. From Houston Public Media, Sarah Willa Ernst has more on the study by Houston Methodist Hospital. Houston Methodist researchers looked at 101 patients with long COVID last year. They found that cells that play a key role in dilating arteries and getting blood to the heart were impaired. Dr. Moez Amala, a cardiologist who authored the study, said the ability of those cells diminished by 20 percent among those patients. This may potentially explain why some patients are having chest pain and shortness of breath, because when they need more blood, their heart is not getting that extra blood. These patients were likely infected with the Delta and Beta variants because the study occurred before the first Omicron surge in the U.S. in late 2021. I'm Sarah Willa Ernst in Houston. Stocks finished lower across the board on Wall Street, with tech stocks posting some of the biggest losses. Uh, The Nasdaq was down 2%. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. MBTA officials are preparing for the month-long shutdown of the entire Orange Line. It begins tonight, and they're insisting the closure won't take any longer than a month. WBUR Simon Rios reports. MBTA Chief Steve Poftak says work planned was identified well before the shutdown was announced and will be focused above all on increasing rider safety. And he says T-riders can be confident it will be done in the 30-day time frame. We have gone through what I would say is a very painstaking, excruciating process to make sure we've got that choreography as good as we can get it. And that does give me confidence that we're going to be able to execute the work. The T has budgeted $37 million for shuttle buses during the shutdown. The rest of the work will be paid for out of the T's capital budget. Poftex says Orange Line operators will spend the shutdown helping riders navigate the diversion and undergoing safety training. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. An ISIS fighter involved in the abduction and murder of New Hampshire journalist James Foley and several others has been sentenced to life in prison. 
Al-Shafi al-Sheikh was the highest-ranking fighter from the terrorist organization to face a jury trial in the U.S. James Foley was abducted while he was covering the Syrian civil war in 2012. ISIS beheaded him in 2014. After the sentencing, Foley's mother, Diane, released a statement saying, justice has finally been served. National Guard crews have contained a wildfire that's burned about 20 acres in Rockport. While it's under control, it is not out, they say. That won't happen until the region gets several days of rain. Massachusetts Chief Fire Warden Dave Salino says the drought conditions are depleting necessary water resources that fire crews use to battle wildfires. A lot of our remote stream bed supplies are dried up. A lot of our watering holes that you could count on to draft from um, are are dried up and not available, and so we rely on having the truck water in. Other wildfires are burning this afternoon in Lynn and Saugus, and those have forced parklands to close. There have been more than 800 wildfires in the state so far this year. The drought this summer is unlikely to hurt the color or delay the arrival of foliage season this fall in New England's mountains. That's according to Jim Salji. He's the foliage forecaster for Yankee Magazine. Salji says while some of the trees may already be turning brown in greater Boston, the same conditions do not exist in other parts of New England. We're actually concerned about what we're considering the backyard effect this year, where people uh, along the coast see the browning lawns, the browning trees, and forget that the foliage inland is going to be great. Salji says while he predicts a good foliage season for leaf peepers in the so-called spongy moth has defoliated some trees in the Berkshires and in parts of the White Mountains. In the forecast, the breeze is keeping things relatively comfortable this afternoon. Despite the heat, tonight should fall to about 68 degrees, and then the weekend should round out about 90 degrees. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, a light wind, slight chance of an afternoon shower. Then for Sunday, bright sunshine, breezy in the upper 80s. Cooler weather's due in next week. 90 degrees is now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. When Mona Minkara was seven years old, she was diagnosed with macular degeneration and cone rod dystrophy. That's a diagnosis that meant she would eventually lose her sight. One specialist told her mother it was not worth spending a penny on her education. Mom did not listen. Minkara went on to earn a Ph.D. in chemistry and is now a professor of bioengineering at Northeastern University in Boston. And this week, she and her colleagues announced a new way to make scientific data easier to interpret for the blind and visually impaired. Professor Mona Minkara joins me now. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. So let's dive into this study. It's Describing something called tactile graphics, which are graphics that, as the name suggests, you can trace with your finger. Um, And start with the origins, because this is a technology built on a a really old-fashioned art form, the the lithophane. Describe it. So actually what it was, I think it was perceived that maybe a thousand years ago, people produced these lithophanes as a form of art. So if you can imagine, like, 
a thin piece of uh, material, mm -hmm. but you have different densities and you shine light, then you'll have different shadows, right? That kind of projects. Okay. So like an engraving. Exactly. That's a lithophane. And so what Brian Shaw, Professor Brian Shaw at Baylor University was like, oh my God, what if we apply this concept to science, to chemistry? Can we do it? And that's, that's exactly what happened. And so this is remarkably revolutionary for somebody like me. So as everybody heard, I'm a blind professor of bioengineering and I work with sighted students. And so one of the things that would be amazing about having these lithophanes is now we have this form of data. I can feel it and my students can lift it up to the light and they can see it. So now we have a universality in communication in our science. Something you can both work with at the same time. How, how have you been doing it? I'm assuming your sighted students were using graphs and charts on a piece of paper. What were you doing? So basically what I've been doing, a very simple cheap solution is sometimes I'll have them print it out and then I'll have another student or an access assistant take a hot glue gun and trace the plot. We wait until it dries and then I feel it. <laughs> That's one simple example. Oh my gosh. It's just such an extra layer of work when you're already doing really challenging work. Yeah. Science needs to be made accessible. This yeah. would be amazing. And I was trying to figure out why Braille wouldn't work. And then it started to seem obvious in the same way that written you know, English doesn't convey everything that can be conveyed in a chart and a graph. Is it the same with Braille? Exactly. So Braille is just the letters, right? It's the words. Now, we mentioned lithophanes are a very old form of art. Um, they would originally have been made with, with porcelain or wax. I assume that's that's not what yes. you're doing. How are you making them? Uh, 3D, like um, the 3D printing materials. Yeah. Uh, okay. Just like the right densities. That's the trick, right? Thin enough so light shines through and thick enough at the different parts so, you know, me as the blind person can feel it. And then the sighted student can like lift it up to the lights and see it. One thing you and your colleagues note in the paper is, and I'll quote, the exclusion of students with blindness from chemistry is explicit and systematic. Um, it sounds like this could represent such an exciting breakthrough, but, but that there's a lot more that needs to change. A hundred percent. We need to change our mentalities. We need to make sure that things like this are readily available. They're not very expensive. We need to change how we teach in a classroom. You know, as a blind person from a young age, I was discouraged from science because of, quote unquote, how impractical it is. Well, you know what? I think any of us who have a passion for a subject should have the right to study it and contribute. Well, Dr. Minkara, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you very much for having me. That's Mona Minkara, Assistant Professor of Bioengineering at Northeastern University. Her work is out this week in the journal Science Advances. The people currently most affected by monkeypox are still overwhelmingly men who have sex with men. That's according to the World Health Organization. And that has caused some hurdles when it comes to public health messaging about the virus. Everything from its name to promoting ways to stop the spread of monkeypox can further stigmatize gay and bisexual men. But as NPR's Andrew Limbong reports, um, a few experts have ideas about why it's important to keep sex front and center in the monkeypox conversation. On the CDC website, where it talks about monkeypox prevention, there's now a section dedicated to safer sex during monkeypox. But it doesn't specify that men who have sex with men are currently at the center of the outbreak. Which it should, says Chris Byer, epidemiologist and incoming director of the Duke Global Health Institute. You have to be specific about 
who's actually at risk uh, and what are the transmission routes and the exposures, at the same time, not wanting to stigmatize that community. Now, you can get monkeypox in other ways besides sex, such as touching fabrics that have been used by someone with monkeypox, so towels or linens, but the evidence so far suggests that that's extremely rare. Byrus says one of the biggest public health challenges is around limiting risky behavior involving sex, so advising queer and gay people to reduce the number of sexual partners and avoid close contact with people you don't know, the exact type of messaging that harkens back to the early days of the HIV crisis. And a lot of people found it to have some kind of elements of homophobia and, you know, to be anti-sex when, you know, sexuality is a very big part of identity. Jennifer Breyer is a historian of HIV-AIDS at the University of Illinois, Chicago. And she points back at one of the formative texts of public health, a booklet published in the 80s to make up for an absolute lack of government response to the crisis. It's by writers Michael Callan and Richard Berkowitz titled How to Have Sex in an Epidemic. The booklet first started as a screed titled We Know Who We Are, Two Gay Men Declare War on Promiscuity. And people went banana pants at that article. I mean, just bananas. Like, you're attacking gay liberation, that's who we are, right? And I understand that at some level. But they were also trying to figure out a model of harm reduction before it existed. And it's a playbook people are still learning from today in dealing with the monkeypox outbreak. Nick Diamond is a co-investigator with RespondMI, a community-led effort to anonymously collect data on sexual networks among queer and trans people in New York City. And in July, he wrote a document called Six Ways We Can Have Safer Sex in the Time of Monkeypox. I'll be the first to say that we have been leaning on activists from the AIDS response to develop these actions and these organizings around our response to monkeypox. But he adds that it's an imperfect line to draw. HIV-AIDS was a much deadlier disease, and it existed at a much more different time politically. And yet, Diamond says, people still have a hard time talking about queer and trans sex. And we have to talk about sex when we're talking about monkeypox. I think that these are uncomfortable conversations, but it is one of the uh, determinants of our health and rights. And so I think if we're going to have a comprehensive response, we need to talk about sex. While men who have sex with men are currently at the center of the monkeypox outbreak, HIV-AIDS historian Jennifer Breyer says that specific turn of phrase can be limiting. Our sexual desire and our sexual practices are way more complicated than any phrase can give us. All the more reason why it's important to talk about it. Andrew Limbong, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered. To the ongoing debate now over whether a recession is coming and what type of recession should we be worrying about? Waylon Wong and Adrian Ma of NPR's podcast, The Indicator from Planet Money, introduce us to the L-shaped recession by looking at a country that went through one, Japan. To understand why an L-shaped recession is so undesirable, we have to look at the different types of recessions. Economists use letter names as a kind of shorthand to describe the shape that results from a graph of a country's gross domestic product over time. By looking at these basic shapes, you can see both the decline 
and the upturn. Takeo Hoshi is a professor of economics at the University of Tokyo. If the recession doesn't continue, we, we know it's a V-shaped recovery. If it continues longer, we start talking about U-shaped recovery. And if the economy doesn't recover even then, in several years, we start talking about L-shaped recovery. And it's really not much of a recovery at all. This is the problem that plagued Japan during the 90s and why that period is known as the country's lost decade. It began in the late 80s with a real estate bubble. There, there were lots of anecdotes that suggest, hmm, the land prices in Japan may be too high. And, of course, the bubble eventually burst. And what followed in the 1990s was this sort of economic malaise marked with slow growth and also falling prices. In other words, deflation. Now, Takeo says that overall, deflation was not a disaster. The Japanese economy was mature, people had savings, and living standards remain high. But the flat or falling prices were part of a bigger, gloomier picture. They signaled an economy that had stopped growing. Japanese companies didn't want to fire workers, so what they did was cut down on new hires. That was probably the biggest cost of uh, Japanese stagnation. The young people didn't get jobs and were not hired into good jobs. Takeo says young people carried the scarring effects of the economic stupor for years afterward. The Japanese central bank did try to stimulate the economy. It cut interest rates, even taking them down to zero. And it also bought government bonds, a policy that we might know as quantitative easing. And on top of all that, the Japanese government spent massively on public works projects like roads and bridges. But demand, spending, and borrowing remain stubbornly low. Some economists put the blame on the central bank for not acting more decisively. So it's a short history of the last two decades or last three decades for Japan. It wasn't quite L-shaped. It was a continued failure of pulling the economy out of recession. Takeo says Japan's struggles have influenced the way other countries deal with downturns. Like here in the U.S., after the dot-com crash in 2000, the U.S. Federal Reserve acted aggressively to cut interest rates because it wanted to avoid an extended Japanese-style recession. And then several years later, during the financial crisis, the Fed and also other central banks around the world, they used quantitative easing, inspired again by Japan. Yep. Lessons we have learned from Japan. Waylon Wong, Adrian Ma, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, the success of native-led movies and TV series. In the forecast, mighty nice summer weather ahead, if you don't mind the heat. At least there'll be a breeze around, as there has been today. Forecast for tonight, partly cloudy, lows about 68. Tomorrow, plenty of sunshine, the chance of an afternoon shower or thunderstorm. Highs about 90 tomorrow. Then for Sunday, sunny. Highs about 88 degrees. Should cool off early next week. If you're on the Cape this weekend, you may have a few more clouds. Tomorrow starting off gray, then gradual sunshine. Highs about 85 degrees. For Sunday, partly sunny on the Cape. Cooler, about 82 degrees tops. 90 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 549. 
We walk around our little bubbles of certainty. They're occasionally rudely shattered, like the sudden emergence of a pandemic or worse, you know. We sort of think we can run our lives. We really can't. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Last week, Hulu had its biggest premiere ever, the movie Prey. The film is a prequel to Predator, and it stars Amber Midthunder as Nehru, a young Comanche woman who's determined to protect her family, including her dog. Midthunder is Hunkpapa Lakota, Shahia Nakota, and Sisseton Dakota. And behind the scenes, producer Jane Myers ensured that the language, regalia, and every last cradleboard were authentic to the Comanche Nation in time. She is a member of the Comanche and Blackfeet Nations. Now, Prey is not the only successful Native-led movie or TV series right now. You can also watch Dark Winds, Reservation Dogs, and Rutherford Falls. This is a ginormous casino, but nobody wants to help my cultural center. The only native artifacts in here are those bags. (laughs) Sierra Teller-Ornelas is the showrunner for Rutherford Falls, and she joins us now. Hi, Sierra. Hi. Um, Before I start, my name is Sierra Teller-Ornelas. I'm a member of the Navajo Nation. I'm Edgewater clan born for the Mexican people. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm so glad that you're here and really excited to talk with you. I want to start by asking you about Prey. Have you seen it? Oh, yes, I've seen it. (laughs) For sure. Okay, what did you think? I have not seen it yet, so you've got to get me up to speed. Oh, my God. Are you a Predator fan? Uh, Not a huge one, but I'm, I'm conversant. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, it's it's brilliant. It's so good on so many levels. It is a great native film. It is a great predator film. And it, neither one of those things, I think, overpowers the other in the most beautiful way. It's it's just so strong in its voice. I think Amber Midthunder is obviously like a huge star. I think a lot of people knew that beforehand, but there's no denying it now. And I also just think as a community, like the memes that came from Indian country <laughs> that weekend that it premiered was so freaking funny. Janish Meeting, who plays Regan on Rutherford Falls, my show reenacted some of her stunts in her apartment just because <laughs> it made you want to to be her whether you were an adult there was also adrian shalepa who's a very funny native stand-up comedian one of her kids tied a fake axe to a rope which is something that the main character does in the oh. movie and so it really was just like it was a beautiful moment i think in indian country where we grew up loving predator and movies those 80s res classics like conan the barbarian and big trouble little china and predator especially and so to kind of see those things coincide was just like so exciting for the community yeah so you think it was a successful a good native film yeah I think it was a great native film. I think Jane Myers, when I first started out in a lot of writing programs, was someone who was brought into my sphere and has always just been incredibly smart and advocating for the community and also for just great storytelling. I think I completely agree that the specifics of the Comanche Nation were very accurate, but I also just think the cultural language was specific and accurate. So the way that the mom woke up the daughter, some of the sort of things that are unsaid and said within Native families, I think there was also just a really great cultural literacy beyond getting, you know, the right amount of buttons on a jacket, which I think is something that is really missing from a lot of films and television 
depicting Native content. So, like, it is not uncommon to have press proclaim, like, this is a big moment. Things are changing. We have solved representation. But I, <laughs> I am assuming I do not have to tell you that is just, like, that's not how things work. But after the success that your show has had, along with a number of the others that we've talked about, does Prey feel to you like another significant turning point in the story of Native representation on screen? Yeah, I think it's a huge step for sure. I think that when Native people are put at the forefront, whether it's in a showrunning position, whether it's in a director's position, whether it's a writer or a producer, a real, real producer, not not just, you know, tacked on producer, mm-hmm. um, it makes for better content. It wasn't just Native people watching Prey on Hulu. That was a huge movie overall for the platform and audiences loved it no matter whether they were Native or non-Native. And so I think it's a huge step forward. I'm always very nervous about the word renaissance because renaissance's end. And so I think really when I talk to a lot of my contemporaries, we're just trying to keep it going. We are trying to create new native writers, new native directors, new native producers, and really champion these people who've been here like Jane Myers for, for quite some time. And so we have a long way to go, but I don't know, man, it's, it's weird to celebrate (laughs) native people our wins, but, but this feels like a time when we're winning and it feels really good, but it also feels good because not only is the content good, but people are enjoying it and really, really coming to watch us. Okay. So how do you keep these wins coming and coming and coming? I mean, I think it's through community. I think that, you know, native people for centuries have, have prospered and worked together utilizing community and supporting each other and then working together. And I think that's what I've been seeing at least. And it's a situation where when one of us wins, we all win. And so you'll see like, you know, very amazing veteran actors like Kimberly Guerrero and Geraldine Keems who've been around forever on both Reservation Dogs and Rutherford Falls, as well as other shows. You'll see, you know, people on their come up like Devery Jacobs and Janish meeting also on both shows. And I think that is really a testament to the fact that we are all working together and we want everyone to have as many turns at bat as humanly possible. I think that, you know, when one of us wins, we all win. And there's something really exciting about this time where Native people, especially in Hollywood, have not been afforded very many opportunities. And we just want as many as we can get, but we also want to create as many opportunities as we can get for the next generation of Native um, media makers. More Native representation is unquestionably a good thing, but I wonder, what do you think that the industry could be doing or should be doing better? I mean, I think a lot of it is about benefit of the doubt. I think that you see a lot of non-Native, predominantly white folks get the benefit of the doubt. You'll see someone who made a Sundance film suddenly get a Jurassic Park movie, you know, mm-hmm. and and we are rarely ever afforded that kind of benefit of the doubt. And I think what's great is we as showrunners and as producers are able to give the people in our community the benefit of the doubt and say, come try directing for television, come try writing for television. Half of the people I staffed on the first season of Rutherford Falls, I found from Instagram or the internet, or they just had made me laugh for many years hmm. and I wanted to bring them on. Um, when I started out, as a staff writer, I had a lot of amazing, mostly non-native mentors who weren't just trying to get, you know, good writing out of me in that season. They were trying to build showrunners. They were trying to create people who would go on to have their own shows. And that is what I tried to do in my room is really lift up the native writers, but I think all the writers in my room to become the showrunners of tomorrow. And that's that's one of my goals in in addition to making a really funny show. Sierra, what do you hope the future holds? Is there anything that you're looking forward to seeing as far as movies or TV shows or representation? Or I guess I should ask anything you're looking forward to creating. 
Well, my biggest dream is to create season three of Rutherford Falls right. airing now on Peacock. I love our show so much. And I think, you know, Michael Gray Eyes and, and, and Jana and Ed Helms are so funny. And, and we just have so many with these short series orders. You know, I came up with network television where you got 22 episodes in the first season. And we haven't hit 22 episodes yet in our <laughs> in our two seasons. So I, I want to make more of my show. But I mean, I want everything. I want more sci-fi. I want more action. I want to do a rom-com. I want to see a real period piece done through a native lens i feel like we haven't gotten that yet mm-hmm. we're just at the beginning and it feels like in a lot of ways which is in some way sad but it's also really freaking exciting that was sierra teller ornelas the co-creator writer and executive producer of rutherford falls sierra thank you so much thank you so much for having me you're listening to all things considered from npr news support for npr comes from this station and from athena health creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. From Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches, online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants, corporate food solutions at easycater.com. From Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Got a dry and hot weekend on the way. First tonight, a few clouds, light winds dipping to the upper 60s. Tomorrow, sunshine should make a comeback with the light winds back up around 90 degrees. We should have a quick shower or thunderstorm tomorrow afternoon, but then for the second half of the weekend, Sunday, we should have sunshine in full force, breezy, with highs in the 80s. A nice weekend on Cape Cod, too. Just some clouds mixing in with the sunshine both days. Temperatures in the low to mid-80s for a high. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Summer of Love event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek. CitysideSubaru.com. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Water supplies that always seemed reliable in the western U.S. are drying up. Could desalinating seawater help? The fact is, it will take time to get projects permitted and built, and so you have to think ahead. Today is Thursday, August 18th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. That story coming up, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also, abortion remains legal in Michigan after a judge ruled that county prosecutors cannot charge providers with a felony. In and around Boston, when the orange line squeals to a stop tonight, it won't start up again for a month. The entire line shuts down in three hours. Parts of the green line close Monday. Experts are warning other cities to learn from Boston's post-pandemic experience. As ridership is slower to recover, it's a cautionary tale to every other transit agency and system in the country. It's 601. 
Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. Russian President Vladimir Putin says Moscow will now allow the International Atomic Energy Agency access to a nuclear energy plant held by Russian forces in Ukraine. As NPR's Charles Maines reports, fighting between Russian and Ukrainian forces near the facility has raised concerns of a nuclear disaster. Putin made the assurances in a phone call with French President Emmanuel Macron, during which the French leader expressed concern over the security of Ukraine's Zaporozhye nuclear power plant, Europe's largest. In a Kremlin readout of the call, Putin blamed Ukraine for shelling Russian forces holed up at the plant, saying Kiev was risking a large-scale catastrophe. But Putin said he would allow inspectors from the International Atomic Energy Agency access to the facility, even as Russia has rejected proposals to withdraw its forces and demilitarize the area. Ukraine says it is Russia endangering the plant's safety by using it for cover as its forces shell nearby cities. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. U.S. officials are warning of increased risks following military tensions around Taiwan as China continues to mount military drills around the self-governed island. China has upped its military ante in the region after two high-profile U.S. visits to Taiwan. NPR's Emily Fang has more. U.S. Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall told reporters during a visit to Guam this week that China's military maneuvers were dangerous. He said they are very provocative and they increase the level of risk. After House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taipei earlier this month, China launched missiles over the island and has been flying fighter jets near Taiwan on a daily basis. Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia Daniel Crittenbrink told reporters the ongoing Chinese drills showed, quote, the People's Republic of China overreacted and its actions continued to be provocative, destabilizing and unprecedented. Emily Fang, NPR News. As many air travelers dealt with delayed or canceled flights this summer, the Biden administration says airlines have to do a better job of helping stranded travelers or face new regulations. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg wants airlines to provide lodging for passengers stranded overnight along with meal vouchers if the disruption is caused by something in the airline's control. Stocks closed lower today as investors try to parse mixed signals on interest rates. NPR Scott Horsley has more. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell is set to address an annual economic meeting in Jackson Hole, Wyoming next week. Investors will be listening for any hints about the size of future interest rate hikes. The Fed's expected to keep raising rates as it tries to curb inflation, but the central bank doesn't want to move too fast and risk tipping the economy into recession. Foot Locker's profits outran analyst expectations for the most recent quarter, and stock in the sporting goods retailer moved higher. Foot Locker also named Mary Dillon as its new CEO. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The MBTA's Orange Line will come to a standstill for one month starting tonight at 9 o'clock. The line is slated to undergo major repairs. Black and Asian business leaders say the MBTA needs to do more to support communities of color during the shutdown. WBUR's John Bender has more. Leaders with the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts and the Asian Business Empowerment Council say the month-long closure will disproportionately impact communities of color. Kareem Kibodia works on policy for the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts. He says the MBTA needs to provide clear communication to residents in affected neighborhoods. And so we'll really be looking to make sure that they are sticking to the timeline that they established, that the repairs are conducted effectively and efficiently. And then it does lead to the question of, of what's next. 
The groups are also asking the MBTA to commit to hiring a diverse workforce for this and future projects. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm John Bender. The northern part of the Green Line also closes for four weeks on Monday for track work. Massachusetts' economy is creating jobs. State labor officials say employers added more than 13,000 people to their headcounts last month. That drops the statewide unemployment rate to 3.5%. The biggest job gains were in government, professional and business services, as well as education and health services. The leisure and hospitality sector lost more than 12,000 jobs. The federal government has declared all of the state except Berkshire County and Nantucket Island as disaster areas because of the drought. That designation means emergency federal loans will be available for farmers. Warren Shaw is president of the Massachusetts Farm Bureau Federation. He says the money will help farmers make up for lost livestock feed. The corn crop will probably be in the range of 50% of what it should be. The grass crops might be 20% of what it should be. So all of that means we're looking at some tremendous uh, replacement costs there. Shaw says farmers have also had to pay more to run irrigation systems longer to water their crops. Some of the noisiest animals in the ocean are actually pretty small. They're called snapping shrimp. And new research finds they may be getting louder as the ocean is getting warmer. As WBR's Barbara Moran explains, the noisier ocean could have far-reaching impact on underwater navigation and communication for animals and for humans. What is the sound of one shrimp snapping? How about thousands? That's the soundscape of many coral reefs. Aaron Mooney, a biologist at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, says warmer waters mean more snapping. And that's what we think is happening on the reefs. The reefs are getting louder because these animals are getting more active. And the changing climate affects the whole ecosystem of sound. That's really fundamental for animals because that's how they communicate to each other. That's how they attract mates. A louder ocean could impact humans, too, like interfering with sonar. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Got a nice evening. A few clouds overnight tonight. Highs in the upper 60s. Sunny, windy, dry weather continues over the weekend with highs in the low to mid 80s. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include the George Gund Foundation, working to make Cleveland and Northeast Ohio more globally competitive, livable, sustainable, and just. More information available at gundfdn.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A ruling today means abortion will remain legal in Michigan, at least for now. Michigan Judge Jacob Cunningham says an abortion ban on the state's books cannot be enforced right now. This is a law that dates back to 1931. The judge suggested that not blocking it could be catastrophic. Though the court appreciates both sides of this debate are passionate in their convictions, by not issuing an injunction today, the court would send the health care system into crisis, the extreme cost of which would then be put on the women of our great state. Well, today marks a big victory for abortion rights advocates and for people who'd flocked to Michigan from other states that have banned abortion in recent months. There's been a lot of confusion over enforcement of this nearly century-old state law, and the confusion may not end with today's decision, as Rick Pluta of the Michigan Public Radio Network is here to explain. Hey, Rick. Hello. Hi. So I know there are there are a bunch of legal fights underway in Michigan over abortion. Mm-hmm. Just situate the significance of this particular case. 
Um, sure, there is actually a different court ruling that says that the state of Michigan cannot file charges against abortion providers, but that's a non-issue because Michigan's Democratic Attorney General, Dana Nessel, says that's not going to happen. So this injunction says that for now at least, local prosecutors, county prosecutors, cannot file charges either, and that's despite the fact that some Republican prosecutors say, well, that should be their call. Okay, so a lot of going on. But again, just to repeat, for now, re- abortions will remain available. What what has been the reaction today in Michigan to this? Well, sure, as you would expect, pro-choice groups say that this is great news, even if it's just a respite. And those Republican prosecutors, well, they're not happy. Their attorney is David Coleman, and here's what he had to say. I, I don't know. I mean, the judges ruled. That's, that's their job. That's what he does. Uh, you know, he did. We disagree. We're going to appeal. That's the way the process works. We're going to go up the Court of Appeals. So next stop, another court. But like I said, pro-choice groups say this is good news. Um, This is Michigan Chief Medical Executive Natasha Bagdasarian, and she says the alternative to this decision is a lot of fear and a lot of confusion. I think it really chills that sort of uh, doctor-patient private relationship. I'm also concerned about positions around the state of Michigan under fear of prosecution for actually performing their duty to their patients. Meanwhile, Rick, there's a call for a constitutional amendment. Um, What's going on there? How does that factor in? So another twist. A petition campaign has submitted 700,000 plus signatures to put a reproductive rights amendment on the November ballot. Today's decision, if it holds up, will keep things as they are until after the November election. Okay, and one more twist. The governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, is looking for a more definitive answer on all this. She's looking to the state Supreme Court. Um, that's right. This is actually kind of where the, this, this case began. The Governor Gretchen Whitmer filed this case, but one of the things that she asked for was for the Michigan Supreme Court to step in, circumvent the lower courts, and take this case right away and rule that abortion rights are already protected under the Michigan Constitution. Lots to keep you busy. Rick Pluta of the Michigan Public Radio Network. Thanks. Oh, you bet. The Colorado River is shrinking. That prompted federal managers this week to issue mandatory cutbacks for some who use its water and more are needed. As states that rely on the Colorado River look for other ways to bolster their supply, some are asking if a process called desalination could help. But as Alex Hager of member station KUNC reports, that technology comes with big trade-offs. It's a picture-perfect afternoon in Southern California. The sun is beating down on a volleyball game in the sand, and a surfer is paddling out into the waves. And just across the road from the beach, this salty seawater is getting a new life at the largest desalination plant on the continent. Michelle Peters, the plant's technical manager, pours a glass from the tap. At 10 a.m., you have the morning surfers swimming in it, and uh, off, you know, off the coast in the ocean here. Carlsbad, now it's high-quality drinking water, ready for consumption. Peters explains how this plant pulls from the ocean, removes the impurities and salt, and makes that water drinkable. She walks through a sprawling web of tanks and pipes where the breeze delivers an occasional whiff of low tide. This is where the magic happens. This is really what makes desal, desal. It's the heart of the site. 
Desalination isn't affected by drought, and San Diego County, which gets most of its water from the Colorado River, added this facility to make themselves less reliant on water sources that could dry up. With federal managers asking states all around this parched region to make huge cuts in the water they use from the Colorado River, some are asking if plants like this could help other states. Earlier this year, for example, Arizona Governor Doug Ducey proposed funding a new desal facility across the border in Mexico in exchange for some of that country's Colorado River water. Instead of just talking about desalination, how about we pave the way to make it actually happen? But taking water from the ocean comes with a catch. It costs a lot of money just to make a little water ready to drink. And that water costs a lot to move. The whole thing is really energy intensive. If they got desperate enough, that could work. Jay Lund studies the economics of water at the University of California, Davis. He says before turning to desalination, cities should look to other ways to stretch their water supply, getting rid of lawns, capturing stormwater, and recycling wastewater. And there's one other big alternative on his mind. The bulk of the new water is almost certainly going to have to come from following some of the agriculture, which is already most of the water used in the western states. Nearly 80 percent of the water from the Colorado River is used by that sector, and following or paying farmers and ranchers to pause growing on their land would free up supply. While experts agree that desalination isn't going to solve the Colorado River crisis, Sharon Megdal, who studies water policy at the University of Arizona, says the Southwest shouldn't write it off completely. When we're looking at the full mix and the full portfolio, I think there's a role for desalinated seawater. And the fact is, it will take time to get projects permitted and built. And so you have to think ahead. Megdal says desalination is still worth more research. Even though it may not be a silver bullet, it could be a small part of diversifying the water supply in some areas as the Colorado River keeps drying up. For NPR News, I'm Alex Hager in Carlsbad, California. One week ago today, an unusual little video game called Cult of the Lamb was released for several gaming platforms, and it immediately soared to the top of the sales charts, one million copies already sold across all platforms, and, well, it seems to be developing a cult following of its own. So guide your flock, grow your power, and spread the word of the lamb. NPR pop culture happy hour host Glenn Weldon counts himself among the growing flock. Hey, Glenn. Hey, Wana. All right, so I've downloaded this game, but I wanted to wait to play it until I talked with you, so I need you to get us up to speed here. The name makes this game sound incredibly creepy, but I'm guessing that is not the full story. No, not the full story. Uh, This game is, uh, well, it's adorable is what it is because your character is this cute, cartoony baby sheep. You got these big, huge Disney character eyes, and you're tasked with gathering followers. And your followers are also cartoony little animals, little piggies and deer and kitties and bears, and they got the same great big saucer eyes you do. Mm, It's very sweet, very sunny, um, at least on the surface, because your job is to get your followers to worship you. And you do that by keeping them happy. Uh, They need to eat, you build them a farm. They need to sleep, you build them shelter. They need to poop, you build them outhouses. Want to start building outhouses right away because that's very important. If you don't, they're going to poop all over the place and then they're going to get sick. Um, So the more stuff you do for them, the higher their faith in you rises, which gives you the power you need to go out and do your cult leader stuff, like uh, going out into the world and gathering more followers and slaughtering other cults. It's its just adorably sinister, this game. Think, think Animal Crossing meets Helter Skelter. Okay, Glenn, we were talking about cute animals with saucer eyes, and now this is taking kind of a dark 
turn? Is this a dark game? Uh, well, it certainly can be. It doesn't have to be, though, because it gives you a lot of choices about what kind of cult you build, what kind of cult leader you become. Now, you could be the kind who sacrifices your followers and brainwashes them with magic mushrooms, um, and that'll give you a quick faith boost, sure, but it's got long-term repercussions because your followers are individuals. And some of them are going to be horrified that you sacrificed their little piggy friend, and a mushroom <laughs> trip is going to leave them exhausted. And if you don't do anything about that, they're going to turn on you and start sowing dissent among your flock. On the other hand, you could be the kind of cult leader who keeps your followers faithful by offering them little blessings or hearing their confessions. Uh, now, the more you play, the more the line separating cult from organized religion becomes a distinction without a meaningful difference. <laughs> so, uh, now... One thing that giving you so many choices does, of course, is open up the game's replay value. Because once you finish, you just go back and play as an entirely different kind of cult leader. And I mean, come on, who does not want to be a cult leader? But Glenn, my understanding is that managing a cult is just one part of this game. Yeah, the other half is dungeon crawling. Uh, to get more followers and to get the resources you need to keep them happy, you're going to have to leave your compound every so often, go out into the world. The game generates a series of short, random dungeons for you to make your way through and gives you weapons to take down your enemies. And then ultimately you'll meet rival cult leaders and you'll defeat them in boss battles. <laughs> The combat is fine, it's nothing special, but what it does do is it gives you a much needed break from the constant demands of your followers who can be a pretty whiny bunch. Uh, so after a long day of cooking them grass soup and emptying their outhouses, it's fun to jump back into a dungeon to take out your frustrations on a few demon frogs or wizard crows or whatever they are. And that's the appeal, right? That's the secret here. I think there have been games where you manage resources before, and Lord knows there have been games where you crawl through dungeons before, but the way Cult of the Lamb combines them, it's, uh, it's really smart. It's really fun. And as I say, this game, it's adorably unsettling. All right. Cult of the Lamb is out on various platforms now. Glenn Weldon, host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Thank you. The Lamb provides one. <laughs> Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on All Things Considered on WBUR, the MBTA's Orange Line is about to get a big summer break. Some T riders are having to sweat it out. On Wall Street, stocks chalked up a weekly loss. The Dow fell 0.86% today, or 292 points, to finish the week at 33,707. SP dropped more than 1.25% to close at 42.28. That snaps a four week long rally. The Nasdaq sank 2% to close at 12,705. Shares in Boston based Wayfair fell 20% in trading today. That's after the home goods company reported it's letting go 870 workers to cut costs. It represents about 5% of the workforce. 400 of those losing jobs are in Boston. Wayfair sales have fallen sharply since the 2020 boom when furniture sales spiked during the early pandemic lockdowns. It's 620. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Help put cancer in the rearview mirror by donating your car, truck, boat, or motorcycle. More at DanaFarber.org slash cars. And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square. With private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. 
Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. A dry and hot weekend ahead. Tonight, a few clouds around, light winds, temperatures in the upper 60s. For tomorrow, sunshine again, breezy, back up around 90 degrees. You could have a quick shower tomorrow afternoon. And then for Sunday, sunshine back again, breezy with high temperatures in the 80s. If you're on the Cape this weekend, should have a few more clouds around. Tomorrow, starting off gray, sunshine eventually, highs about 85. Partly sunny on Sunday on the Cape, highs about 82 degrees. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Twilight, Los Angeles 1992 at the ART, Anna DeVere Smith's award-winning play about the L.A. riots. Learn more at amrep.org. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Parts of the MBTA are about to come to a screeching halt. Two lines will undergo major shutdowns or maintenance. The month-long closure of the entire Orange Line starts tonight. That'll affect nearly one-third of Boston-area subway riders. A partial Green Line closure begins first thing Monday. But as WBR's Simon Rios reports, riders are doubtful the shutdowns will fix the ailing T. A group of local musicians newly named the Mystic River Ramblers plays on an Orange Line platform this week, a version of a Boston classic reworked for the shutdown. Boston subway is the oldest in the country, and in recent years, it's been the site of a breathtaking array of bad events. One man got his arm caught in a closing door and was dragged to death, and just weeks ago, a car caught on fire on a bridge, leading one rider to jump into the Mystic River below. Earlier this year, the Federal Transit Administration began investigating the T. Then state transit officials this month decided to shut down the Orange Line, giving just two weeks' notice of the closure that starts tonight. Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker says the shutdown is needed to fix aging infrastructure. Doing 24-7 shutdowns for 30 days will allow the T to speed up upgrades and it will result in a smoother and faster Orange Line. Days after the Orange Line shutdown was announced, officials said part of another line would also close for a month of maintenance. Boston schools are about to open, and city officials are scrambling to ease the impact of the closed subway with dedicated bus lanes, free bike rentals, and help for affected businesses. But many subway users are dubious about the benefits of a shutdown. Mella Bush heads the T-Riders Union in Boston. She says even these month-long closures might not be enough. What is it going to fix? We don't want to put a Band-Aid on it because this will just keep perpetuating itself. And, you know, we're tired. You know, we want to feel safe. There's so many safety issues on the MBTA right now. Lots of riders also think the T should have shut down the subways during the pandemic when ridership was way down, or at least before the start of the school year. But one thing officials agree with advocates on is that the T's problems are the result of decades of underinvestment. And the state's former transportation chief, Jim Aloisi, says Boston subway could herald what's in store in other cities. As federal relief funding diminishes, as ridership is slower to recover, and as agencies face the harsh reality that they cannot depend on fair revenue as they used to, it's a cautionary tale to every other transit agency and system in the country. And that tale, he adds, says we need to invest more in public transportation. Approaching. 
Lucy Salado of Somerville rides the Orange Line to get to her job downtown every weekday. It's normally a straight shot, but now she's planning to ride shuttle buses for two hours each way. And together with the rising cost of rent in Boston, it's making her reconsider living in the city. With winter coming, if something like this were to happen again, again, I'm expecting, so I just can't really take that risk right now. Another daily Orange Line rider is Victor Martinez. He says he's hopeful the shutdown will make the tea better, and he's ready for whatever inconveniences come his way. If a soldier has to prepare to win a battle, Martinez says, then we can ride shuttle buses to get to where we need to go. For NPR News, I'm Simon Rios in Boston. In Oregon, a very open rift between the state Supreme Court's chief justice and the head of the public defense agency has threatened to undermine trust in the court system. The rift led to an overhaul of an oversight commission, the firing of that public defense chief, and allegations of judicial overreach. Meanwhile, across the state, hundreds of people charged with crimes do not have access to a public defender. Oregon Public Broadcasting's Conrad Wilson has more. For roughly the last eight months, Steve Singer has served as the executive director for the state agency in Oregon responsible for public defense. About an hour before he was fired yesterday, Singer declared the commission that would decide his fate a complete sham. This is what happens in in third world tin pot dictatorships. That nine-member commission oversees Oregon's public defense system and the executive director. That would be Singer. Members are appointed solely by the state's Supreme Court Chief Justice. And that structure contributed to this week's drama. Uh, We've been in chaos of Mr. Singer's making. That's Oregon Supreme Court Chief Justice Martha Walters. The rift between Singer and Walters started over how to address a very real shortage of public defenders. The Constitution guarantees the right to an attorney for people charged with crimes, but in Oregon, more than 700 people are without an attorney, including many in custody. Walters wanted immediate solutions to address the shortage, and while Singer provided a plan, he was also focused on larger concerns that affect public defenders, such as caseloads and attorney retention. Yesterday, before he was fired, Singer condemned the process that led up to that moment as a case of judicial overreach. And this is the most, the, the most significant frontal attack on the independence of public defense ever in the United States, and it is frightening. It is scary. So here's what happened. Last week, Chief Justice Walters asked the commissioners to fire Singer. They were deadlocked. So on Monday, Walters fired the entire commission. An unprecedented move. Then on Tuesday, Walters appointed a new commission that included five previous members, most of whom had voted to fire Singer. Walters explained her actions. I never anticipated exercising my statutory authority to remove and reset the commission but the issues that we face in public defense are so urgent. I couldn't allow the dysfunction and the distractions to continue. But for now, it has continued. Walters is a longtime justice in Oregon and is well-respected. But replacing a commission so it would fire Singer has stunned corners of the legal community that believe public defense should operate without political or judicial interference. Problems with Oregon's public defense system date back years. A 2019 report commissioned by state lawmakers raised concerns about the chief justice's influence over public defense and recommended other branches of government share oversight responsibilities. Various state officials have been giving this lip service for a long time. 
Jason Williamson is the executive director of the Center on Race, Inequality and the Law at NYU School of Law. People are being distracted by this sideshow and forgetting about the fact that we still have hundreds, at least, um, if not thousands of people who are without counsel and have been without counsel for months on end, including people in custody. A state working group was formed this spring to explore solutions, but Williamson is skeptical. He's one of several attorneys suing the state for not providing lawyers to those charged with crimes. He says if he had any confidence the state was going to act, he wouldn't have filed a lawsuit. For NPR News, I'm Conrad Wilson in Portland. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Checking sports, Red Sox road trip continues tonight with a three-game series in Baltimore. Cutter Crawford pitches for Boston in Game 1 tonight. Patriots host the Carolina Panthers tonight in Game 2 of their NFL preseason. ESPN's Mike Reese reports Pat's quarterback Mac Jones and other starters are expected to play tonight. Game time is 7 p.m. 90 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR at 6.30 and Marketplace is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Red's Best. With local home delivery and pickup at the Boston Fish Pier, direct access to fish, shellfish, and sushi from networked fishermen, redsbest.com. Peabody Essex Museum. Patrick Kelly, Runway of Love, celebrates the genius of a self-taught designer who changed fashion forever. On view now. Tickets at pem.org. And Tufts Medicine. It's not just medicine. It's Tufts Medicine.